This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 190th edition of the program. Today is Friday, April 26th, and before we get into the news, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us for the very first time, or increased their monthly pledge. That includes Anthony Cotton, Chris Eskidit, Coralie LaSalle, Lisa Hammond-Wessels, Mark Loomis, Peter LaCroix, Sebastian Hess, Seth Caddy, Shant Meridian, Sue Pearson, and Vincent Geschwend Jr. So thank you so much to all of these kind people. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanist report and under any of our youtube videos you can join simply by clicking join below the video so this week on the humanist report podcast pete Buttigieg compares bernie supporters to donald trump supporters elizabeth warren proposes free college and student loan debt cancellation cnn holds five town halls with 2020 presidential candidates and of course cnn stacked the deck against bernie sanders one of bernie sanders biggest 2016 critics had a change of heart joe biden launches his 2020 campaign by holding a fundraiser with a comcast lobbyist presidential candidate john delaney attacks trump in the most mealy-mouthed way possible pete Buttigieg has doubts about bernie sanders political viability and prisoners should absolutely have the right to vote and i'll make the case for that and finally we closed out the week with a discussion about the flint water crisis reaching its five-year anniversary by speaking with documentarian jordan sheridan about his film flushing flint so that's what i've got for you guys for today's show uh let's go ahead and get into it i hope you guys will uh enjoy the episode So a couple of weeks ago on the program, we talked about an article that was published by the Washington Post, and the author was Dana Milbank, and he posits that Bernie Sanders is the Trump of the left. And ever since this article was published, we've seen cable news try to reinforce this narrative. We've seen politicians and establishment politicians, more specifically, try to reinforce this narrative. And now, right on cue presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, who attended What to Do About Bernie meetings secretly with Democratic Party leadership, such as Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Neera Tandon even, he is now reinforcing this narrative as well. But rather than saying that Bernie Sanders himself is like Donald Trump, is the Trump of the left, he's saying that Bernie Sanders supporters are similar to Donald Trump supporters with respect to their anti-establishment predisposition. So this is what he had to say specifically, and when we come back, I'm going to tell you why I take issue with his framing of people who are anti-establishment. Seeing that the numbers are fine, like unemployment's low, like all that, like you said, GDP's growing, and yet a lot of neighborhoods and families are living like like this recovery never even happened. They're stuck. It just kind of turns you against the system in general. And then you're more likely to want to vote to blow up the system, which could lead to somebody like Bernie and it could lead to somebody like Trump. And that's how we got where we got. 
The reason why I take issue with what he said there and really his framing more specifically is because there's this underlying implication that being anti-establishment is inherently bad. There's that negative connotation associated with being anti-establishment. And he says, you know, people who are anti-establishment because it let them down. This is why we're in the situation. Because people are anti-establishment, because they opt for Bernie, because they opt for Trump, this is why we're in the situation. So on one hand, there's the correct assumption that the establishment is pissing off a lot of people. But on the other hand, there's this also this the secondary implication that, well, this is why we're in this bad situation, this objectively bad situation. It's because there's this anti-establishment fervor. So you kind of tacitly give the establishment a pass rather than explaining how bad it's been and why people are anti-establishment. But just to draw this equivalence between Trump and Sanders supporters, even to suggest that they're on opposite sides of two extremes is harmful because what Trump supporters have is a fundamental misunderstanding as to why the system is not working. Whereas Bernie supporters, we're not anti-establishment because we believe that the political establishment is inherently bad. We're anti-establishment because we have a nuanced opinion, because the establishment is not working for normal Americans. And the reason why we're anti-establishment is because we view the establishment as impediments to justice, equality, environmental justice. So because the establishment is no longer working, because it is now static, we are saying the establishment needs to do better, whereas Donald Trump supporters, they don't get that. There's no complexity with their political ideology. Trump just says, look, it's immigrants, it's Muslims, and they accept what he says. Whereas with us, there's no cult of personality driving our support for Bernie Sanders. So that's why to even put Bernie supporters and Trump supporters in the same category, even if it's correct that they're both anti-establishment, what you're doing is a disservice. You are glossing over really important details that differentiates Trump supporters from Bernie supporters. And really... If you want to compare anyone to Donald Trump, any politician to Donald Trump, ideologically speaking, Pete Buttigieg is closer ideologically to Donald Trump because Donald Trump is on the far right, Pete Buttigieg is more of a centrist, and Bernie Sanders is a center-left politician. So if anyone should be compared to Donald Trump, it should be the centrists, the Pete Buttigieg's, the Beto O'Rourke's of the world because they're the ones who are closer to Donald Trump, but yet... People like Neera Tandon promote this idea that horseshoe theory is a thing where you have two equally opposite far right and far left sides that move so far to the left and the far right moves so far to the right that they almost converge in a way. But that's not true. What I think is a more accurate representation of what's happening is fishhook theory. But understand what's happening here. And even if Pete Buttigieg is able to, I think easily explain away this comparison here what they've been trying to do when i say they meaning cable news pundits and establishment politicians they're trying to cultivate a narrative be very aware of the fact that they have been deliberately trying to prime you to believe that bernie sanders is like donald trump so can i just play who he's starting to sound a lot like right i pay what i owe by the way donald trump says that and is completely unashamed i pay what i owe and why would i pay a dollar more Okay. That's right. Every um, American should here, do that. Here, um, here are Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump talking about their books. I got a public rise 
for writing a book that was number three on the New York Times bestseller, translated into five or six languages. Uh, but I wrote The Art of the Deal, which is, in all fairness, I think the number one selling business book of all time. <laughs> Sorry, it's I great. mean, it is it's funny. Great. It is funny. Well, look, why are these guys so alike? So they're trying to cultivate this narrative, and that's on purpose. It's no coincidence that all of a sudden, everyone in the mainstream media, everyone in the political elite class is trying to compare Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders. It's because they want people to believe, even if it is subtle, that, well, you know, we have this instability because of Donald Trump. So if you elect the left equivalent of Trump, then obviously that's going to make for more political instability, and it's unacceptable. And that's specifically why... People have been calling Pete Buttigieg out here. So, for example, Ro Khanna says, Come on, Pete Buttigieg, it is intellectually dishonest to compare Bernie to Trump. Bernie is for giving people healthcare education, childcare, and more pay. He wants to blow up credentialed elitism, those who reject tuition-free college for all. And, of course, Pete Buttigieg does reject that. Nina Turner says, Bernie Sanders supporters are not the same as Trump fans. Senator Bernie Sanders supporters are Democratic and independent voters, many of whom are people of color. And she goes on to cite articles that explain just how diverse and dynamic Bernie Sanders' base is. So I think that those tweets do a phenomenal job explaining why we are pushing back so forcefully against this narrative because what Pete Buttigieg is doing by comparing Bernie supporters to Trump supporters is he is adding to this media narrative that they're all collectively trying to cultivate that Bernie is the Trump of the left. It started with Dana Milbank and they all started parroting the same thing and now here Pete Buttigieg is doing the same thing. Now, he's trying to take shots at Bernie Sanders because when you are behind if you can attack and target the front runner, it makes you more viable. It boosts your name recognition. Now, Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, he doesn't have to do that because the media loves him. They are eating out of the palms of his hands, but he chose to do this. And it's because, again, he was part of that small coalition of elite Democratic Party insiders who got together, had dinner, and discussed what to do about Bernie. Now, he did release a response, and this is what he had to say. My point is that people have been motivated to want to blow up the establishment, and Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump represent radically different ways of doing that. But I think part of how each of them was able to get some appeal was by speaking to the frustration that so many Americans have with anything perceived as the establishment, anything seen as being committed to the political and economic systems that have been prevailing really for my entire life. So even though they led different voters in very different directions, I do think it is meaningful that anti-establishment candidates, the more dramatically anti-establishment, the better be it from the left or the right, have been able to get so much support in recent years. Two things that I noticed here. First of all, he's kind of walking back his comments, but second of all, the reason why he's talking about the establishment and the perceived skepticism of anyone or anything, any entity associated with the establishment is because it's led people down. Now, why would he touch on this? Why would he even bring this up? Well, it's because it's very clear that he is an establishment candidate. News media loves him. The Democratic Party leadership clearly loves him since they met with him to talk about what to do about Bernie Sanders. So he is part of the establishment. So I think that he's probably personally angered 
at the fact that people are skeptical of anyone who's perceived to be anywhere near the establishment. And since he is part of the establishment and certainly perceived to be that way, I think correctly so, and this is just speculation, I can't get inside his head, but because he's perceived to be establishment, now he wants to try to speak to the frustration and kind of communicate to voters, hey, look, I get it, I understand. The establishment isn't working. Now, the question is, is this a strategy that can help boost Pete Buttigieg's anti-establishment street cred? Possibly. I mean, I think that it's important, just generally speaking, that you acknowledge that there is widespread frustration with the establishment. But the problem is he will have this perception issue going forward since he already met with Democratic Party leadership and essentially conspired to figure out what to do about Bernie Sanders. And that's going to be a problem. So maybe it's the case that he wasn't intending to take shots at Bernie Sanders and he just worded what he was saying in a really poor way. But the problem is once you start drawing comparisons between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and their supporters, you start making it seem as if you're jumping on the bandwagon on a particular narrative that the media is currently trying to shove down our throats, that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are similar in a multitude of ways. And the problem is, if you do that, then people who you may need in the event you become the Democratic Party's nominee will feel disenchanted with you because they think that you're just like Donald Trump supporters. So all that I'm saying here is, if you want to be perceived as being anti-establishment, at least to a, a larger degree than he has been, then actually be anti-establishment, take more populist positions, and stop conspiring behind closed doors against Bernie Sanders. Period. So if we were to all pretend that Elizabeth Warren was not backtracking on the issue of Medicare for All, if we pretended for a minute that she was supportive of Medicare for All unequivocally, then she would be a virtually perfect candidate because week after week she comes out with a new proposal that I think is bold, it's innovative, it's fresh, and she keeps going up in my book with the exception of Medicare for All. However, she proposed a college plan that would do two things. One, it would make public colleges and universities tuition-free, and two, it would deal with the current student loan crisis in a meaningful way and a really, really meaningful way because she put forward a plan that is by far and away the best out of any presidential contender in the field. So she has a two-pronged approach to tackling the student loan debt crisis. The first is to make sure that people currently burdened with student loan debt get relief. And the second thing she wants to do is make sure that future college students don't deal with the current crisis that millennials are facing today. So she's calling for up to $50,000 in student loan debt to be canceled for 42 million Americans. This is huge. And ever since Jill Stein originally floated the idea of canceling student loan debt, I have been screaming about other Democratic Party politicians, namely progressives, to make this part of their agenda. And finally, a major candidate is adopting this. So she explains, my plan for broad student debt cancellation will cancel debt for more than 95% of nearly 45 million Americans with student loan debt, wipe out student loan debt entirely for more than 75% of Americans with that debt, substantially increase wealth for black and Latinx families, and reduce both the black, white, and Latinx white wealth gaps, and provide an enormous 
middle class stimulus that will boost economic growth, increase home purchases, and fuel a new wave of small business formation. So that's her broad plan to relieve students currently plagued by student loan debt, but here's what she's proposing when it comes to free college. She wants all students to graduate with zero debt. She wants to give every American the opportunity to attend a two-year or four-year college without paying a dime in tuition or fees, make free college truly universal, not just in theory, but in practice by making higher education of all kinds more inclusive and available to every single American, especially lower-income Black and Latinx students, without the need to take on debt to cover costs. So this is the way that all candidates, especially progressives, should be talking about the student loan crisis. It's not enough to just say that we need to make public colleges and universities tuition free, because that's certainly important. It's certainly going to help future generations. But for those of us who already went to college and now have all this student loan debt, you have to do more. And Bernie Sanders, I love him to death, but he just has not been bold enough when it comes to tackling the current crisis because his plan is basically the same as Obama's and Hillary Clinton's. He'd limit the payments to a percentage of your income and forgive it after a number of years. But what Elizabeth Warren is doing here, it's just objectively better. And I'm glad that she's coming out with this because this challenges even your favorite candidate, Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, to move further to the left and take a more bold stand here. Now, I want to do get into the specific numbers she talks about with regard to her plan because it's very thorough, it's incredibly specific, and you can read her Medium post where she goes into great detail about what she wants to do. So it cancels 50000 in student debt for every person with household income under $100,000. It provides substantial debt cancellation for every person with household income between $100,000 and $250,000. The $50,000 cancellation amount phases out by $1 for every $3 in income above $100,000. So for example, a person with household income of $130,000 per year gets $40,000 in cancellation, while a person with household income of $160,000 gets $30,000 in cancellation. It offers no debt cancellation to people with household income above $250,000, and that's the top 5% of income earners. For most Americans, cancellation will take place automatically using data already available to the federal government about income and outstanding student loan debt. Private student loan debt is also eligible for cancellation, and the federal government will work with borrowers and holders of this debt to provide relief. Canceled debt will not be taxed as income. So this is absolutely gigantic. This is her best proposal by a mile and a half. This is great. And she has a number of proposals that I absolutely love, but this is a game changer. She just went up substantially in my book. And if she actually supported Medicare for all unequivocally, which is my number one issue, I'd say she's getting competitive with Bernie Sanders in my book. Because she may not have the political courage or the street cred that Bernie Sanders has, but this type of policy innovation is incredibly important. Because we need to not just be vociferously advocating for policy ideas that we all care about, but we need to be pushing the envelope and coming up with new ideas. Now, this isn't 
the first person to propose student loan debt cancellation, just like AOC isn't the first person to propose a Green New Deal. This is why I think the Green Party is so important, because Jill Stein had a lot of these ideas first, and even if it took a couple of years for it to catch on, this is why I think third parties are important. But with that being said, let's get into some additional details. First of all, she's going to be able to fully fund her plan here for both student loan debt cancellation and free college, all with her 2% asset tax. That's amazing. She's creating a fund specifically for HBCUs, which is also important. These are underfunded institutions. She wants to stop giving federal money to private institutions, and she wants to prohibit college admissions from discriminating against people with criminal records and non-citizens. My hat goes off to Elizabeth Warren. I've been critical of her before, but this is a phenomenal thing to propose, and I think this will resonate with a lot of people, especially millennials, which is why Bernie Sanders, it would be very smart of him to come up with this policy. Although, when you look at David Sirota, who is part of Team Bernie, his response really kind of rubbed me the wrong way because he says, remember when Bernie Sanders proposed tuition-free higher education in 2016 and the media slammed him? And now only three years later, the media lauds the idea as a brilliant innovation without even mentioning Bernie's tireless work campaigning for it. Good times. Now, he deleted that tweet and put up a similar tweet with different headlines, but what I hear from that is him being defensive. But you've got to acknowledge that Elizabeth Warren's plan is just objectively better than Bernie Sanders. Now, we can be extra kind to Bernie and say he's the best on Medicare for all by a mile and a half. But on this issue, Elizabeth Warren takes the cake. She's just better than Bernie here. And I do find it frustrating that the media now is okay with with this idea since other people are proposing free college and you know they kind of dismissed bernie sanders and all of his ideas as pie in the sky i do find that frustrating but rather than getting defensive compete push bernie to do better push bernie sanders to propose his own student loan debt cancellation plan because i've been screaming for years as a bernie supporter that this is what he needs to do. And I've been trying to get Bernie Sanders on the program now. And in the event I were able to be successful at doing that, the first question I would ask him is, what are you going to do about student loan debt? Because again, free college in and of itself is phenomenal. It ensures that my nieces and nephews will be able to go to college and not graduate with debt. But what are you going to do currently for people who already have this debt? Now, Bernie Sanders is cognizant of the fact that you've got to do something, but you've got to call it like you see it. Elizabeth Warren just outflanked Bernie Sanders from the left. Now, you can give Bernie credit for being the OG and being the first to propose free college, but at the same time, she's the first major Democratic Party presidential candidate to even talk about this in a really meaningful way. Student loan debt cancellation is a game changer. So don't get defensive, David Sirota. Compete. Come out with a better plan come out with 100% cancellation because this is what I would do. If I'm even considering Elizabeth Warren's plan, if I were Elizabeth Warren, I'd say we're going to cancel 100% of student loan debt. That 1.5 trillion, we're deleting all of it because you won't actually get that. But when you negotiate, you'll negotiate down to something that she's actually aiming for. So I would go bolder and Elizabeth Warren just outflanked Bernie from the left, but she left him enough room to where he can still top her on this particular issue. 
All right, so I am choosing to make a video at 9 p.m. Pacific time. It is currently midnight on the East Coast. By the time I get this video out, it will probably be about midnight on the West Coast. And I'm making a video because, as you all know, CNN just had five back-to-back -to -back town halls, each one hour long. And this entire event, five hours long in total. So let me just start this video by complaining about how long that is and how it would be a lot better if they broke this up and did one per night because Jesus Christ, I felt like I just ran a marathon. Like that is just too many town halls in the same evening. And by the time we passed that midway point, like once we got about halfway into Kamala's, I was already struggling to pay attention. By the time we got to Pete Buttigieg, I had already mentally tuned out and I had to force myself to try to pay attention. Um, so this was just, it was brutal and we need to not do this again. Let's, let's do one per night next time, guys, because that was just, that was difficult. And I'll say this, I actually didn't watch all five of them. I missed the most of um amy klobuchar's i i tuned into like the last five minutes i wasn't necessarily planning on watching hers i probably will try to catch it later but um generally speaking i don't care about amy klobuchar at all like i don't even want to watch it to see if there's anything that i may be able to criticize her for because she's just so boring but i will say this um i tweeted about this and i asked people whether or not she was asked the question about why she, why she chose to eat salad with a comb and everybody like kind of responded jokingly but i was actually being 100 percent serious like i genuinely want more details on this story because i am captivated by this story um so if i were in a town hall and i were able to ask her a question i would certainly ask her a question about the salad with a comb and look you all know me you saw the interview that i did with andrew yang and not to toot my own horn but too, too. It was full of substance, but when it comes to Amy Klobuchar, there's something about her that makes me only want to ask her the question about eating salad with a comb. Um, so <laughs> I will give you kind of this broad overview. I originally wanted to talk about this tomorrow, but I figured it would make more sense to talk about it now since I just watched all of these. Um, and it's still fresh on my mind, but as you can tell, I'm starting off this video rambling, so we're already off to a poor start. This will probably be like 35 minutes by the time we're over, so you should probably just click out of the video now. But for those of you who are choosing to stay, let's talk about all of these town halls. So before we start talking about the individual town halls, um, I'm going to stay focused on Klobuchar just for a second because I want to share the Jeb Bush moment because I didn't watch her town hall but throughout the um commercial breaks I was trying to find clips that people were pulling from her town hall event and she literally had a Jeb Bush moment take a look and every single time I have run I have won every single congressional district in my state including Michelle Bachman's okay it's when you guys are supposed to cheer okay Man, that's amazing. So <laughs> overall, um, I think that all of the candidates were asked pretty difficult questions with the exception of Elizabeth Warren. I think that even though she was challenged to a degree, I think 
Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders were challenged the most, and even Pete Buttigieg had a couple of tough questions, but overall, you cannot deny how unfair these questions were when it comes to Bernie Sanders. He had a number of questions. In fact, virtually every single question that was posed to him forced him to take a defensive stance. There were no softballs, nothing that allowed him to kind of just talk at length about any of his policy proposals. He was forced to defend himself. And there were a number of gotcha questions that irritated me to no end. So, CNN is garbage. Like, I think that we need to establish that before going forward. CNN is complete garbage, and it's clear that all they were trying to do was ask questions that would generate headlines, because if you generate headlines, you may generate more views and clicks and ratings, and that benefits them monetarily. So, I absolutely am disgusted with with CNN. But with that being said, I'm going to try to put that aside. I'll talk about Bernie's town hall in a separate video since that's the one that matters the most to me. But let's get to Elizabeth Warren. So I have my old fashioned uh, pen and paper. We're going to do it that way. And um, I think she did a really good job overall. With that being said, she kind of had the advantage of not having uh, having CNN jump down her throat without having biased questioners, but I think she did a good job explaining her student loan debt cancellation plan. It doesn't go as far as Jill Stein's plan, for example, but it's still phenomenal. She explained that. She explained really well about why we need to break up the big tech. So there were a lot of moments that gave Elizabeth Warren the opportunity to really shine, and I think that she capitalized on that, and she performed exceptionally well. When it comes to impeachment, she talked at length about impeachment, and I think that she lays out a very thorough and detailed reason as to why, in principle, we should support impeachment. And I agree with her because I actually took pretty much the same position on impeachment. My problem, however, is that I don't trust that Democrats will not make this into a gigantic distraction. And I just know that if they focus on this, it's going to distract from the policy substance. So I... I worry about Elizabeth Warren's stance because even if this is a well-reasoned position, I don't trust that she's going to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. I just don't. But her answer was great. It was convincing. I think we do need to pursue impeachment if we want to hold powerful people to the same exact standard as everyone else. So I just hope that she's able to strike the proper balance. Um, additionally, she had a phenomenal answer for the most part about social security insurance. She gave a really historical perspective about social security. She kind of combated some of the misinformation about it going insolvent, and she explained that that's not actually true. Um, she talked about how Russia attacked our election, and the problem with her rhetoric, she said this three times, by saying Russia, quote, attacked us, that implies that you're going to take a more adversarial approach to foreign policy with Russia. And even if we should do things to protect ourselves, we should increase cybersecurity. She could be supporting efforts like Tulsi Gabbard to do that, to um, secure election integrity. But when you use words like Russia attacked us, I think that's inherently hawkish. And I wish that she would kind of move away from that language. But with that being said... Besides that, it was great. She talked a little bit too much about her life's work. Like, she literally used the words, my life's work. And I don't care so much about personal stories as I do about the policy substance. Now, I do think that it's 
you know, it makes sense. It's it's relatively relevant. Not to sound that sounds a little bit redundant, but you know, it's it's relevant to say I care deeply about these issues because um you know, this is what I've been working towards, justice and equality. But I think that it seems a little bit forced, like she's trying to go out of her way to seem personable. And Elizabeth Warren, when she just kind of stops trying, when she just embraces the inner nerdy wonk that she is, she absolutely shines. So I think that by and large, um, you know, if she just is, is herself, if she stops, you know, using the thumb point and stops taking the advice of her advisors, she would do phenomenally well. She'd do better. So overall, I don't want to um, shit on her performance. I think she did a great job. I actually think that she performed better here than she did at the last town hall, and that's largely because she wasn't asked the question about Medicare for all. If she talked at length about healthcare, I would probably be inclined to be disappointed again because as we all know, last time she moved away from Medicare for all. Um, One thing that bothered me towards the end is that she refused to really differentiate herself from President Obama, and you can see that she was clearly trying to dodge the question. Um, so Elizabeth Warren is very transparent. You can tell when she's dodging questions, um, and it doesn't come off very well, I think, to the audience. But with that being said, she had the opportunity to really discuss her policies at length, and she's a phenomenal communicator. She educates people about the history of different policies, um, she educates people about what her plans would do specifically and how it would look in practice. And I think that overall her performance was phenomenal and it was probably the strongest of the night out of all the town halls. But there is the caveat that she had the most softball questions. I mean, she was challenged, but again, not to the degree that Bernie or even Kamala was. So I want to move on to Bernie Sanders. So this was nothing but gotcha questions. And I'm not going to talk too much about Bernie here because I do want to get into that separately because that's the town hall that I was, you know, I, I was most concerned with. But I'll just say this about CNN. It was evident all they wanted was gotcha questions. Gotcha after gotcha after gotcha. They wanted to pin Bernie Sanders to the wall. They wanted to corner him. And you know how biased they were when they allowed somebody, a serious person supposedly, to ask a question about how Bernie Sanders wants to implement Soviet-style policies here in the United States. And the way that this person, you know, pitched it was, well, you know, her parents flee the Soviet Union. I mean, you if you are a serious news organization, you don't let this question through unless you just want to smear Bernie Sanders. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. I mean, every single question was basically aggressive. It forced him to be combative. Um, you know, the question about Israel, for example, it was framed in the sense that Bernie Sanders was inherently wrong for being against Israel or being critical of Israel. He was asked how he'd compromise with Republicans. And I mean, all of these questions frustrate me to no end because when are we going to start asking Republicans when they're going to compromise with Democrats? It's always incumbent seemingly on Democrats to find common ground with Republicans, but they're the ones who are on the far right. They're the ones who are becoming so extreme that they are marching off of a cliff, but yet everyone in mainstream media is only talking about the far left and it is beyond frustrating. I'm going to get to Kamala Harris. So she overall 
she's a threat. She may be Bernie Sanders' biggest threat because she is politically savvy. She knows exactly what to say. Do I believe anything that she's saying? Absolutely not. I don't believe that she'd actually fight for Medicare for All, but overall, the answer that she gave to the question about Medicare for All was brilliant. Hands down, it was brilliant. Because the question was posed to her, and it's the same question that Bernie Sanders gets. What do you say to people who currently have health insurance and they want to keep their health insurance? This is what she said. Now, I'm paraphrasing. She said, we shouldn't be duped by insurance companies and let them dupe us into defending them. We shouldn't do that. That answer right there, single-handedly, may have been the shining spot of the entire five uh, five hours. That was such an amazing answer. I was actually taken aback because nobody's really talked about this in that way. Nobody responded in that way. And that's essentially the perfect response that you want to give if somebody poses this question to you in a very biased and misleading way. So that was brilliant. I mean, that was a phenomenal way to answer the question. Now, I will say this. She wasn't particularly strong when it comes to wanting to effectively eliminate private insurance companies. She always seems to kind of stumble here, and I do think that she needs to do better in this regard. But I think, by and large, she's stuck to her guns. But ideally, what you want to say is, look, I'm not in favor of making insurance companies illegal, but do I want to effectively eliminate them? Absolutely. They can exist for supplemental coverage, and she did say this, but you need to stress that my goal is to make them go out of business because I want a single-payer system that is so robust, so good, that you won't even need to think about potentially getting private insurance coverage. So overall, here's what's crazy to me. The way that Kamala Harris is talking about Medicare for All, she has surpassed Warren on this issue. Because Warren backtracks when she talks about Medicare for All. She runs away from it. When the issue of Medicare for All comes up, if you listen to Warren, she runs away from it. Kamala Harris embraces it. She runs straight towards it. So you've got to understand, the way she's talking about this is incredibly strategic And it's going to give her a huge boost, I think. She may be kind of losing favor among the establishment because they've moved on to support Beto and then Booty Judge. But what she's talking about here, you've got to give her credit where it's due. Phenomenal. Now, overall, she did a good job. I think she did a phenomenal job. She gave a great answer on decriminalizing and really legalizing sex work. She explained how we don't want to punish individuals who are in that industry um she also gave a similar answer to reparations as bernie sanders she signaled support for hr 40 um but it's a little disappointing that she's not willing to take it further than that and actually support cash payments but nonetheless you know um the fact that they're even acknowledging hr 40 i do think that's a step in the right direction but progress is painfully slow in this regard but i mean her answer was basically the same as bernie's um i think bernie answered probably a little bit better here but i can't be too hard on her and overall she was strong on lgbtq rights but one thing that i've got to say that kind of stood out to me and i don't know i don't know if this was intentional or not she was talking about transgender rights and she said trans men and i think what she meant to say was transgender women now I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, and 
I'm gonna assume she wasn't intentionally misgendering transgender women, but nonetheless, you know, um, she's gotta do a little bit better here, and just her history when it comes to trans rights, it does worry me, because when she was the top cop in California, she intervened to try to block a transgender inmate's gender reassignment surgery. Moving on to Pete Buttigieg, this was by far, um, out of the four that I watched, the most boring, the most painful, and I want to show you my tweet. So going into this, I predicted that he would say something to the effect of, in 2054, when I'm the current age of the current president, and he did that. My prediction came to fruition because towards the end, at I think minute 57, he said exactly what I predicted he would say. Now, <laughs> does he say this in every single interview he does? Absolutely. So does that make me a clairvoyant? Um, no, it doesn't. I'm not a wizard. I don't have a crystal ball. But what I think that we need to acknowledge is that this is a very scripted candidate. If you watch enough interviews with him, you can memorize his talking points and the script that he uses that he sticks to very closely. Now, he's not like other politicians to where when he deviates from the script, um, he just falls off a cliff because I think he performs well when he goes off script and you can tell when he's going off script. But with that being said, um, this really is something that bugs me because politicians... I mean, we all have talking points, right? Even I have talking points. I say the same shit all the time. But to be that scripted is so frustrating to me um, because it's just typical politician bullshit. And I think we're all sick of that. We're sick of the thumb point. We're sick of all of these rehearsed lines, these focus group driven, you know, um, tested lines that irritate me. Now, I do want to give Anderson Cooper some credit here because he actually did call out Pete Buttigieg for lack of policy substance. CNN did field relatively difficult questions. There was a student from Oregon who asked him about demolishing more than a thousand homes in South Bend, Indiana within a thousand days and how that disproportionately impacted um, blacks and Latinos. Somebody asked him about why he chose to fire or demote the first African-American police chief. These are all diff difficult questions, um, and I don't think he answered them adequately, in my view. In fact, I don't really know what to even take away from his answers. I, I feel like I didn't learn anything from his answers. Because the thing about Pete Buttigieg is that he talks so long, and he explains things in such an indirect, almost amorphous way, that by the time he's finished answering the question, you forgot what the question was. He takes you on this long, boring journey, and sitting here watching this, I can't help but think, Jesus Christ, just stop talking. Like, he's got to be more concise, because... Jesus, it's hard to listen to him. It honestly is. He's a bright guy. He knows what he's talking about clearly, but he just takes the time to almost filibuster, it seems like, an answer in the most longest way. But you've got to be punchy. Like, you've got to be able to respond to questions in a really quick, concise, and meaningful way. Otherwise, on a debate stage against Donald Trump, you're going to get pounded into, into the pavement. You just are. Because Trump, he can answer almost any question in one or two sentences. Pete Buttigieg needs like 10 minutes to answer a simple question. He also addressed the Sanders attack. And again, he, he rubbed me the wrong way. And it's because he's just, he's bad on this topic. He says that people narrowed down their choices in 2016 
to Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And these are all anecdotes. Polling doesn't show that, but these are anecdotal examples, so we can't disprove them. But I call bullshit. I call bullshit. Are there people who originally supported Bernie but then flipped and voted for Trump? Yes. But how large is that percentage? It's smaller than the percentage of people who voted for McCain but supported Hillary Clinton during the primary in 2008. So here's what I think he's doing. He's trying to make the valid point that people are disenfranchised and disenchanted with the political establishment. But at the same time, it seems as if he's also trying to launch a soft defense of the establishment almost because I think he knows that he's perceived to be an establishment candidate because the establishment loves him. He attended What to Do About Bernie dinners with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. So I think that he knows what he's doing. He's just savvy enough to try to hide what he was really trying to do. And that is, he was trying to prime us to think about Bernie Sanders as a Trumpian candidate because we all know that Dana Milbank, he promoted this narrative in the Washington Post Bernie is the Trump of the left, and Pete Buttigieg is doing the next logical thing. He's extending that to Bernie supporters. They're also like Trump supporters, so I'm not buying what he's selling here. Um, additionally, he says that incarcerated people should not vote. Now, what I hate about the way that CNN framed this question was they made it seem like, well, you know what, it's only going to be the murderers and the rapists, the sexual offenders, the terrorists who are going to vote. But that is such a disingenuous, superficial way to talk about this. It's a superficial way because if you are not allowing people who are incarcerated to vote, you are essentially stripping them away a crucial portion of their citizenship. And to remove citizenship and what's entailed, all the benefits entailed with that, I feel like that's a form of cruel and unusual punishment. And if you believe in democracy, then you can't support democracy with the caveat, I support universal suffrage. But either you do or you don't. This is a very black and white issue. And if you truly are for democracy, then 100% of the population should be voting. 100%. You know, in Scandinavian countries, and some at least, they literally campaign in jails and prisons. So really, I think that the judgment of how well a society is performing, I'm going to butcher a, a quote here, but it's how not how well they treat the people who are best off in society, but it's how well they treat the people who are worst off in society. And the fact that this crowd of Harvard students, that they cheered that, um, it shows that they don't really care about the nuance. For the most part, this entire crowd irritated me because they asked moronic questions for the most part. Um, they asked awful questions, and it really, this caricature that I had in my mind of Harvard students being pretentious and douchey, they pretty much lived up to that expectation. So, of course, they're going to cheer, you know, um, disenfranchising felons. It reminds me, you know, this, because Kamala Harris was asked the same question, this reminds me of when Michael Dukakis was asked about the death penalty and whether or not he would support getting rid of the death penalty for someone who murdered his own family. Advocating for universal suffrage does not mean that I am pro-rapist or pro-sexual assaulter. Bernie Sanders isn't and Kamala Harris isn't because she also said this is something we should talk about. It just means that if we want to live in a just society, in a democracy, we cannot deny people the right to vote, any person the right to vote. So that irritated me. 
one last thing that I want to talk about is he got the question of homophobia. And as president, what would you do? How would you respond to countries? Something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Like Saudi Arabia, for example, who are brazenly homophobic. They literally kill people if you're gay. And he turned this into a question about America losing its credibility and why we need more credibility. But that doesn't address the crux of the question that was posed to you. And again, this speaks to Pete Buttigieg's ability to bullshit because he can take anything and turn it into this long-winded answer that makes you forget about the question that was asked. And I think this is a really effective way that he can dodge questions because it doesn't feel like a dodge because he's talking. But I mean, he's talking a lot. There's noise coming out of his mouth, but he's not saying anything meaningful. So with that being said, this is kind of my superficial overview of all of the um, candidates and their town halls. Five hours was too long because as you can tell, I've babbled now for 30 minutes nearly. Uh, getting close there. And probably everything that I said was incoherent, and it was most likely as vacuous as Pete Buttigieg. Chris Cuomo hosted Bernie Sanders' second CNN town hall of the 2020 election cycle. And before we get into the specifics of this town hall with Bernie Sanders, I want to talk about what happened last time when Chris Cuomo hosted a town hall with Bernie Sanders. What they were doing was trying to lob gotcha questions against Bernie Sanders in an effort to extract a specific headline that frames Bernie Sanders as a candidate who said something bad. So to show you a more explicit example of that, Back in 2016, when Chris Cuomo hosted his first town hall with Bernie Sanders, Chris Cuomo was trying to get Bernie Sanders to say, we will raise taxes in order to fund Medicare for all. Now, what he was trying to do was get Bernie Sanders to agree to this so he can take Bernie out of context and CNN can then write articles about how Bernie Sanders says that we need to raise taxes. But the problem with that is when you remove away the context, you're not telling people, if your goal as a news outlet is to educate people, you're not telling them that overall you're going to net save them money because you're also eliminating private health insurance premiums and co-pays and deductibles. But nonetheless, all they wanted was to take Bernie out of context and communicate to you that he wants to raise taxes and therefore he's bad. Well, guess what? Unsurprisingly, they did it again. So when it comes to this question here of whether or not felons who are currently incarcerated should be able to vote, the way that they framed the question was to take the most heinous crimes, people who are terrorists, people who are rapists, and say, well, Bernie, you want these people to vote? So the person who asked that question was obviously anti-Bernie Sanders and the reason why we extend suffrage universally, universally is because we believe in democracy. If you think that people should not be allowed to vote because they're currently incarcerated, then you just have to admit that you're against democracy. So she posed this question to Bernie Sanders. He didn't really take the bait. Can you guess what Chris Cuomo did? The same thing he did last time. He reiterated the question, reframed it so Bernie would directly respond to whether or not he thinks someone like the Boston Bomber should be allowed to vote. And look at the headlines that were produced. 
they stripped away the broader context of Bernie Sanders explaining the necessity of universal suffrage extending voting rights to everyone, including felons who are currently incarcerated, and they got what they wanted out of this. They got exactly what they wanted out of this. I hate to say it, but they were actually more unfair to Bernie Sanders than Fox News. 100% of the questions that were asked forced him to play defense. They were incredibly combative, and you could tell that every single person, out of all the questions that they curated, intentionally tried to get Bernie Sanders. This is gotcha journalism, and it was disgusting. And throughout the course of this town hall, I was just furious, because if you contrast Bernie's town hall with, you know, Elizabeth Warren's and Kamala Harris's, they were able to discuss policy at length. Bernie was not able to do that. He was denied that luxury because he was forced to defend himself. He went into that town hall and CNN assumed that he was public enemy number one and the goal was to take him down, not give him a chance to explain himself, which is completely egregious. It is not good journalism. It's garbage journalism. And I think that Chris Cuomo should no longer be allowed to host these town halls because he did the same thing now that he did last time. He tries to get Bernie so we can take him out of context. Completely unacceptable. Completely. Now, in addition to make matters worse, Bernie Sanders, he let his guard down. He just did. Um, When he went into the Fox News town hall, he knew what to expect. He knew that there would be a plethora of biased questions lobbed against him, but he was prepared to swat that down. But when it comes to CNN, because they're more legitimate than Fox News, he just kind of let his guard down and wasn't as prepared to swat down these questions when he needs to treat CNN the same way he treats Fox News, because they are as out to get Bernie as Fox News is. In fact, Fox News may not be as out to get Bernie because they've somehow deluded themselves into thinking that Trump could beat Bernie, so maybe they want to try to prop Bernie up as a Pied Piper, if you will, but for the most part, CNN is out to get Bernie Sanders. This was incredibly clear during this town hall, and if you look at the headlines that came away, CNN got exactly what they wanted. So with that being said, let's get into some of the specifics and try to extract out the substance. Because, again, what a disappointing town hall. So when it comes to reparations, I notice a measurable improvement here from Bernie Sanders. He brought up, woefully so, H.R. 40. Thank you. Because I like that he's talking about this. Is, is he where he needs to be on this? No, I think he still has a way to go. He still needs to do better. But for the most part, by saying that he supports H.R. 40, which is the bill that studies reparations, he's showing his willingness to listen and grow. He shows that he's not being as stubborn. And I think that this is the right move because strategically, if you think about this, if Bernie Sanders just did a 180 and said, look, I endorse reparations, they'd attack him for that anyway. We know that they're weaponizing the issue of reparations against Bernie Sanders. Julian Castro tries to do this, but if he flipped on it, they'd say, well, Bernie, this is disingenuous you're flip-flopping but by endorsing hr 40 he's showing his willingness to listen but he's still not necessarily compromising from his original position now where do i think bernie stands personally i think as president if the study concludes that reparations would be something that benefits american descendants of slavery 
I think he'd sign that into law. I really do think that. So I think that this was a good answer, and I was incredibly happy to see improvement there. Other areas where I think he did a good job, you know, when it comes to the Green New Deal, he talked about people in current dirty jobs and how we need a just transition. Um, when it comes to student loan debt cancellation, he was asked about Elizabeth Warren's plan, and he kind of, you know, signaled a willingness to learn more about it. Overall, he needs to get on board with student loan debt cancellation. This is something that I, as a Sanders supporter for many years now, have been begging him to take notice of and pay attention to. And it's nice to see that he's being influenced by Elizabeth Warren from the left. Um, so I hope to see movement here as we saw with reparations. When it comes to the issue of compromising with GOP, he said, look, I'm willing to work with Republicans, but I'm not going to jeopardize my own position. I'm not going to sacrifice my own principles. I thought that was a great answer. Um, when it comes to impeachment, I was a little bit bothered by his answer because it felt to me like he was kind of dodging the question, not a direct dodge, but he was dodging it in the sense that he didn't seem to be inclined to want to address head on, should we or should we not impeach Donald Trump? He seemed open to it, but by and large, I think that he needs to come out with a very direct answer and stick to it. But with that being said, I think that he was probably, even though his answer was not as lengthy as Elizabeth Warren's, he was more nuanced in discussing the issue of whether or not Democrats can actually pursue impeachment without getting incredibly sidetracked. I think Bernie is right to stay focused on the policy substance, and if I had to choose a course of action, it would be for them to stay focused on policy, because I have no faith in Democrats. I think if they pursue impeachment, this is the only thing that they're going to talk about, and I even have my doubts about Elizabeth Warren. Can she actually pursue impeachment while talking about policy simultaneously? Now, We'll have to see how that turns out. So far, it's going well for her because she advocated for impeachment over the weekend, but she came out in favor with this amazing student loan debt cancellation plan. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see, but I think his answer for the most part was sufficient. He's more nuanced than Warren, and I think that if you kind of combine both of their answers, you have the amalgamation of a perfect response. Um, with that being said, let's get back to the topic of CNN and their bias. Somebody literally posed the question that their family escaped the Soviet Union. Therefore, you know, Bernie, you need to explain why you are proposing Soviet-style policies to implement in the United States. This question nearly made my head explode. My father's family left Soviet Russia in 1979, fleeing from some of the very same socialist policies that you seem eager to implement in this country. How many people did this question have to go through? The person who posed the question, the college student from Harvard, who is not bright enough to realize that there's a difference between social democracy and a Soviet-style authoritarian country, but nonetheless, she thought this was a good question, the CNN producers thought this was a good question, and they greenlit this question, which was obviously just a smear, because they want people, CNN specifically wants people to think that Bernie isn't just a social democrat, he's not just advocating for a Scandinavian type of social democracy or Scandinavian-esque redistributive policies, he supports Soviet Union type of socialism. You can tell 
how um <laughs> how his head almost exploded when he got that question because he said are you are you basically accusing me of supporting authoritarian socialism is it your assumption that i supported or believe in authoritarian communism that existed in the soviet union i don't i never have and i opposed it that was the dumbest question out of the entire five hours and i really mean that like the person who asked that question needs to educate herself the people at cnn who greenlit this question need to do better because this shows that you don't actually care about policy you don't care about asking fair but tough questions you just want to get bernie now the last thing i want to talk about they asked him a question about israel and it was framed from the position of bernie why don't you want to suck off israel as much as all of the other politicians I mean, no matter what the policy position was, or the question was, rather, they asked it in a way that put Bernie on defensive. And I'm glad that Bernie did not really back down. He called Netanyahu a racist, but he does need to get better. I think his answer was not perfect here. But overall, let me just say this. Not the best town hall from Bernie Sanders. I think that he felt like, well, this is CNN, you know, so I don't have to be as prepared as I was with Fox News. I think that he felt like, you know he would have an easier time swatting down the bias and the bullshit, but certainly he was not as aggressive. And I wish that going into future town halls, he'd do exactly what he did at the Fox News town hall. Because what Andrew Cuomo did was a disservice. So that was the Bernie Sanders town hall. I may do a follow-up video where I go through some clips, but for the most part, you know, CNN, they, they are terrible. This is why... Basically, people on the left and the right hate CNN, and they don't trust CNN. They are dog shit. They are a phone news organization that doesn't actually care about policy substance. All they want is to push an agenda, and their agenda was explicitly clear. They wanted to attack Bernie. They wanted to get Bernie Sanders, and that's why basically 100% of the questions were framed in a way that forced Bernie Sanders to defend himself or defend an existing position. He was not given the same opportunity as every other candidate was given to really talk at length about something that he was proposing. He wasn't given the opportunity to talk more specifically about Medicare for All. Now, to be fair, he did talk at length at the first CNN town hall about Medicare for All with Wolf Blitzer, but I mean, part of being a good host is allowing candidates to shine you have to at least give them the opportunity to shine and if they don't shine at least you were fair in giving them the time he was denied that and it wasn't just bernie who was wronged here it was the american voter the average person who maybe genuinely wanted to know more about bernie's policy positions but was forced to watch this pseudo journalism where they just tried to get him unbelievable shame on cnn so let's talk about this article from The Nation, which I find absolutely fascinating. So it's written by an ex-Clinton staffer who was formerly a Hillary Clinton loyalist, but is now saying, I've changed my mind about Bernie Sanders. I've had a change of heart, and I think that Democrats should not try to hobble his campaign. And the individual, as you all know, who I am referring to is... Peter Dow. Now, it's interesting because just a couple of years ago, him and I were on opposite sides of the Democratic Party civil war. We exchanged 
insults on Twitter, or not necessarily insults, but, you know, we, we argued with each other on Twitter briefly, and a lot of people kind of look to him as the quintessential Hillary Clinton supporter, who basically, in my view, propped up Hillary Clinton and put her on this God level where she was above criticism and any and all criticism of her was just completely unacceptable. But now, over the last year or so, you've seen this measurable shift in his tone and you notice that he's kind of had this political awakening and in real time, you see him going through this evolution where he realizes that really relitigating 2016 isn't the best way to defeat Republicans, and correctly so, he realizes, look, if Democrats are going to try to take shots at Bernie Sanders and bring him down, they're just helping the GOP. Now, with that being said, do I think that he's saying Bernie should now be above criticism? No, because I've been critical of Bernie Sanders myself, but basically, I think what he's really speaking to in this article is this concerted effort, these private dinners, these what-to-do-about-Bernie meetings between Chuck Schumer, Pete Buttigieg, and Nancy Pelosi, to figure out how to defeat Bernie Sanders. But what he essentially says in this article is, if we're doing that, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And I want to read parts of this article to you, because it's fascinating. So the article is titled, I was Bernie's biggest critic in 2016. I've changed my mind. Bernie Sanders can beat Donald Trump, and it would be an epic act of self-destruction for Democrats to try and hobble his campaign. And he writes, If you had told me in the spring of 2016 that three years later, I'd be touting the merits of the Bernie Sanders campaign, taking flack from Hillary Clinton's supporters for not being loyal enough to her, I would have laughed and asked what alternate reality you lived in. But life and politics have a way of taking unexpected turns, and here I am, writing about the considerable strengths Sanders brings to the 2020 election. I do so not to endorse Sanders or to minimize the large and diverse Democratic field. It is early in the primary and voters should take the time to assess all their options. I am going through that process myself, studying how the candidates campaign, how they deal with the corporate media, what policies they're putting forward. The reason I've focused on Sanders in recent weeks is because I am concerned that festering anger from the 2016 primary is causing a rift in the electorate that Trump and the Republican Party can and will success exploit. Bernie Sanders is unquestionably in the top tier of candidates for the Democratic nomination, and it would be an epic act of self-destruction for Democrats to plunge into an internecine conflict over his candidacy at a time when they need to marshal every asset to defeat Donald Trump and his GOP cronies. I am calling on Democrats, progressives, and leftists to hit the pause button to table our disagreements no matter how intense as we fight to preserve the rule of law and the last semblance of our democracy. We owe it to ourselves and our country. My political and personal evolution since 2016 has caught some people off guard. I'm often asked how a staunch Clinton advocate and former Sanders critic could reverse course. The answer is simpler than it appears. I spent 15 years before the 2016 election as a progressive activist, a critic of the Democratic Party's meekness in the face of GOP extremism, and a supporter of the policies Bernie Sanders promotes. After months of self-reflection about my own role in the 2016 primary, I realized I was among the far too many Clinton and Sanders supporters who got caught up in an 
an ugly family dispute that spiraled out of control. We've all experienced those explosive fights. In the heat of the moment, we see each other as enemies rather than human beings who largely share the same goals. So I began to reach out to repair what had been broken. On Twitter, I unblocked Sandra's supporters who I had argued with. I tried to see things from their perspective and I asked them to do the same. There's still some residual anger and skepticism, but the healing process has given me invaluable perspective and I can now look at the 2020 primary through a clear lens. Virtually every state and national poll shows Sanders at or near the top of the Democratic field. Polls are fluid at this stage, but Sanders is a known quantity and his base of supporters is solid. His proven appeal to young voters and independents is a powerful asset and his ability to deliver a well-crafted and unapologetic progressive message to Americans across the political spectrum is crucial if Democrats hope to take on an increasingly extremist GOP. Alarmingly, the ferocity of the GOP's attack on our norms and values is met with timidity from the Democratic Party leadership. Even after grassroots activists and voters generated a 2018 blue wave that swept Democrats back into power, in the House, the party leadership has proven incapable or unwilling to rise to the historic challenge of facing down encroaching fascism. There are no saviors coming to rescue us. We must become our own leaders to defeat Trump and to reverse the rising tide of white nationalism that threatens the foundation of our democracy. We must have the courage to set aside old grievances for the greater good. Bernie Sanders is not the only candidate who can defeat Trump, but he's certainly one of them, and he should not be treated as the enemy. Wow. So just take a moment to reflect on this. These words were written by Peter Dow. Look, people, people can change. Now, if you look at any of his recent tweets, now he's being relentlessly criticized by Hillary Clinton supporters. So there's this question of, you know, is this a genuine evolution? Is, you know, this just to promote a book? And personally, I actually do believe that this is a genuine evolution because if you wanted to basically reverse course right now, specifically to promote a book, you're kind of doing a bad job at promoting your own book. Because imagine if I suddenly flipped and became a Hillary Clinton supporter, or worse, let's say I flipped and became a Trump supporter, and then I said, hey, Bernie supporters who've tuned in for years now, buy my book. I mean, you'd tell me to go fuck myself. You'd say, Mike, you're crazy. So, I mean, <laughs> if this was a career move, um, it would be a really poor career move. Now, you can still make the case that, you know, he's doing this to garner attention for his book, whatever, but is it likely that, you know, this was a genuine evolution? I think so, because people are capable of changing. Since 2016, I myself have gone through numerous political evolutions, and I tried to stop being so defensive in the face of criticism and tried to be more introspective because I realized that if I were going to be one of the people criticizing the Democratic Party for a lack of self-awareness, then I also needed to practice what I preached. So I started to kind of do some self-reflecting. I started to read more books, and I've kind of gone through my own, I guess, mini evolution. It's not a substantial one, but the changes that I've essentially gone through is now I'm more sharper in my criticism of capitalism specifically. I think I name and shame white supremacy more because I don't think I've spoken out as forcefully against that. And furthermore, I try to stop relitigating 2016 because at this point, 
I'm so sick of talking about 2016. We can talk about that for hours. And I think that in the event Peter Dow and I had a conversation about 2016, it would be an explosive argument. But if we just put that aside and talk about the policies that we presumably agree on based on the indications we got in this article and how to defeat Republicans, I think there would be a lot of agreement. And I think that this article, it really communicates that people on the other side are willing to partake in a healing process. And he's very careful here to not say, Democrats, let's come together. I think there's this message of inclusivity, progressives, leftists, because a lot of people don't identify with the Democratic Party. I left the Democratic Party in 2016, and I only re-registered reluctantly recently so I can vote for Bernie in 2020. Now, the reason why I re-registered so far in advance was because I worry about any shenanigans that might come up that might prevent me from registering ahead of time. But, you know, for the most part, I still don't identify with the Democratic Party. So I think that just collectively people on the left do need to realize that there should be this olive branch that we extend to one another. Now, I, you know, in saying that, acknowledge that I'm not willing to sacrifice any of my principles. I am still on the left and I'm not going to yield an inch, but in terms of trying to have an open mind and welcome people who I formally disagreed with, should I think, do I think that we should engage with those people? I do, because if we want to win, we've got to build a broad coalition. And I think part of that is not saying, well, you know, fuck you, Peter Dow, you were a Hillary Clinton surrogate, you know, not an official surrogate, but you certainly were one of her loudest boosters. So fuck you. I don't want to hear from you. And I don't think that's the best way to go about doing politics. I mean, the goal is to broaden your coalition. So if people genuinely want to change and reflect, then we need to welcome that. And I actually tried to foster dialogue with someone on Twitter who was a supporter of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but hates Bernie Sanders. To me, this is perplexing because ideologically, they are the same. AOC may be slightly to the left of Bernie Sanders on some issues, but I mean, by and large, it's inconceivable to me that someone can support AOC, but not Bernie Sanders. So I tried to engage in dialogue, and this person, you know, in good faith told me the reasons why they don't support Bernie Sanders, but they support AOC. It had to do with race and how they don't think that he speaks to the issue of race relations good enough. And even if I disagreed with their assessment, I do think that what kernel of truth I was able to take away from that person and from that exchange, it was helpful because we have to tailor our message to broadcast it outside of our own progressive echo chamber because we can talk all day long to each other in mainstream media or in, in indie media um, about how bad the mainstream media is and about how our progressive message is the best, but we've got to try to find a way to market it in a way that will reach people outside of our own bubble. And I think that that's kind of what Peter Dow is doing here. And look, credit where it's due. If you look at what he's been saying on Twitter lately, um, he's been getting attacked for speaking the truth and saying things that we've been saying. So I absolutely welcome this evolution here. And, you know, shout out to him for doing this, because if he had this genuine, like, self-discovery and introspective process it's very hard to fight past your own cognitive dissonance and it's very difficult 
to speak out about them and vocalize, you know, this change because you're afraid about how people are going to respond. There are, there have been many times in my life where I've gone through these mini evolutions myself, some of them monstrous evolutions, and I was very worried about, you know, me vocalizing my change because you don't know how that's going to come across. I mean, I grew up Christian, and then when I started to tell my family that I was atheist, you know, I was worried about that. When I started to, you know, come to the realization that I was gay, you know, I had to reverse course after living my life as a homophobe, openly so, I had to then tell people, look, I'm actually gay, and the homophobia that I was projecting was to hide my insecurity about my own sexuality. So, I know firsthand that it's very difficult to basically reverse course, and especially in such a short time, for someone to vocalize their change like this. You know, you've got to give them credit where it's due. It's, um, I think it's bold. And if people want to change, if people want to join our team and come to our side, or at least form an alliance or a ceasefire to team up and take on Donald Trump, that's fine. So, you know, this is certainly a fascinating article. I'm glad he wrote this article because I was genuinely curious. Like, we all kind of joke about the newly woke Peter Dow, but I think that to get this insight is very interesting. So, you know, credit words do. Peter Dow, um, my respect for him went up substantially because of this. To be able to vocalize your changes, even if you know it's going to lead to criticism from your former allies, you know, it's, it's a bold move. So, um, you know, I respect him for this. As many people know, this week we are all expecting former Vice President Joe Biden to launch his 2020 campaign. And in fact, by the time you watch this video, he may have already launched his campaign. But I want to share something, a bit of news that really speaks to how out of touch he is because he's already launching by doing something he should absolutely avoid doing. So as Carl Bode tweets, Joe Biden's very first act as a candidate will be to hold a fundraiser hosted by Comcast's top lobbyist, David Cohen, who calls himself the company's chief diversity officer to skirt lobbying rules. Amusingly, Comcast gets very upset when you call Cohen a lobbyist, despite him very clearly being a lobbyist. Now, I find this hilarious because there are so many lobbyists in the country who get defensive when you refer to them correctly so as a lobbyist. Howard Dean does the same thing, but it's because we all know that the word lobbyist has a lot of negative connotations associated with it because it is part of the corruption that makes Washington, D.C. so unappealing to normal Americans. But that's what Joe Biden's doing. He's launching his campaign by having a fundraiser with the Comcast lobbyist. Now, why is this especially harmful for a Democrat to do this? Because we are currently in the midst of the battle for net neutrality, an important battle that we are fighting like hell for. And he's getting in bed immediately with the enemy. So more details about this. As Donald Shaw of Real Sludge explains, 
On Thursday, after he announces he is running for president, Joe Biden will headline a fundraiser in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, hosted by David Cohen, Comcast's senior executive vice president who leads the company's lobbying efforts in Washington, D.C. According to reports, Cohen's email invite for the event asks for attendees to contribute $2,800, the legal maximum towards Biden's presidential campaign. Comcast, the largest cable company in the world, has been a leading voice in the telecommunication industry's efforts to oppose net neutrality rules, spending millions on lobbying against laws at the federal and state levels that would prohibit internet service providers from giving priority treatment to certain types of traffic, such as content produced by ISPs or their corporate partners. The federal government is currently deadlocked on net neutrality. The Democrat-controlled House of Representatives recently voted in favor of restoring net neutrality rules, but the Republicans who control the Senate, as well as the Federal Communications Commission, led by former Verizon attorney Ajit Pai, are staunchly opposed to enforcing net neutrality through laws or regulations. The Democrats' next chance to enact net neutrality won't come until at least after the 2020 elections, when the balance of power in Congress and the White House may be reshuffled. If Biden were to be elected president, it's not certain that Democrats and net neutrality backers would have support from the White House. Now, it may seem counterintuitive to think that Joe Biden wouldn't deliver us net neutrality after he came from Obama's administration, who secured Title II for us, but you've got to go back and remember what happened back in 2015 and 2014. So, when Barack Obama appointed Tom Wheeler as FCC chair, Tom Wheeler came from the industry. He was a Comcast lobbyist who originally was trying to destroy net neutrality. He said, you know, we're not going to allow internet service providers to block and throttle content, but maybe we should allow them to set up fast lanes. So if Netflix, for example, pays Comcast $100 million per year, then they get faster internet speeds. So that's what he was pushing for. And then grassroots activists essentially forced him to reverse course. And then since there was so much pressure put on Obama's administration, he was forced to come out and say, I don't think that we should be doing this. Fast lanes is essentially a way to destroy net neutrality. And then Tom Wheeler basically had no choice. He had to follow what the sitting president wanted. But Joe Biden, for the most part, I'm not so sure that he would be as open to reversing course as Obama because He's been a longtime skeptic of net neutrality. In fact, he has come out against supporting net neutrality bills previously. In 2006, when he was a senator from Delaware serving on the Judiciary Committee, Biden said that he did not think net neutrality rules were needed. Quote, Biden indicated that no preemptive laws were necessary because if violations do happen, such a public outcry will develop that the chairman will be required to hold this meeting in this largest room in the Capitol, and there will be lines wandering all the way down to the White House, CNET reported. In 2007, Biden declined to co-sponsor the Internet Freedom Preservation Act, a bipartisan bill that would have amended the Communications Act of 1934 to include net neutrality protections. Comcast was a top contributor to Biden's Senate campaigns, according to data compiled by the Center for Responsive Politics. Individuals affiliated with the company gave Biden $84,500 from 1989 to 2010. So are you noticing the pattern yet? He took money from the industry 
as do many anti-net neutrality individuals in Congress, and then he did their bidding. He said, you know, we don't need net neutrality. The public outcry, it's going to be so overwhelming. These companies aren't going to want to violate the principle of net neutrality, except he showed how ignorant he is because, first and foremost, most of these internet service providers have monopolies. So if they violate net neutrality, you don't have a choice. Like Comcast just imposed data caps on my internet service. What could I do about that? Could I threaten to cancel? No, because they are the only people in my area that actually offer high-speed broadband at least as fast as the speeds that I need for uploading and downloading content to run a podcast. I had no way to voice my grievance because there's nothing I could do. So there's monopolies. And second of all, we saw how in practice that did not play out because there was an overwhelming amount of people who spoke out in 2017 and Ajit Pai still went ahead with the repeal of net neutrality regardless of us essentially begging him to not do that. Now, to be fair to Biden, this was back in 2006 and 2008. So maybe it's the case that he had a genuine change of heart. However, I'm not going to be charitable here and give him the benefit of the doubt, seeing that he's launching his 2020 campaign by allowing a Comcast lobbyist to hold a fundraiser for him. So, I mean, essentially the bare minimum, what's expected of a Democratic Party presidential candidate supporting net neutrality, something that even the most corporate Democrats in the House, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer in the Senate support, we can't be sure that Joe Biden will support that policy. He is so out of touch, I don't even understand why he thinks he should run. I get that he feels emboldened to run because he's pulling ahead of everyone else, but I really think that once people realize how out of touch Joe Biden is, once the nostalgia fades away, and once they take off those rose-colored glasses and they realize, you know, those warm and fuzzy feelings I felt about Biden because I associated him with the Obama era, you know, it was bullshit, I think he's going to fail. Like, for me, when I go back and I play these old video games that I feel nostalgic about i realize wow these don't really you know stand the test of time the graphics are a little bit too bad for my liking um the gameplay isn't as good as i remembered it and you kind of see it for what it is you know i I don't want to go backwards i want to go forward that's what i hope voters you know um realize with joe biden but we'll have to wait and see but this is an awful sign one of the easiest positions to take as a democrat Joe Biden is presumably not taking. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've seen Mayor Pete be a little bit more confident and more direct in kind of tacitly calling out the other candidates. He's been taking these indirect shots at Bernie Sanders as of late, and I don't know what he thinks he's going to accomplish, but this obviously undermines the Democratic Party establishment's plea for unity. Because... Obviously, if they're going to say Bernie Sanders and his supporters should play nice, then don't you think that they'd follow their own advice? Apparently, that only applies to us, and they don't have to follow that same standard. But a couple of weeks ago, he kind of took a thinly veiled shot at Bernie by saying, you know, we can't, 
you know, um, expect to win if we have these loud liberals screaming, something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. I know Kyle did a video about this, so I would encourage you to watch that. Um, just this last week, he compared Bernie Sanders supporters to Donald Trump supporters, and now he is raising doubts about Bernie Sanders' ability to defeat Donald Trump in the event he becomes the party's nominee in 2020. Now, as Rachel Frazen of The Hill reports, Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg said he doubts fellow hopeful Senator Bernie Sanders can beat President Trump in a general election. I have a hard time seeing the coalition ultimately coming together there, the South Bend, Indiana mayor told The New York Times. Buttigieg added that at the time, people were refreshed by the novelty of that boldness of Sanders' ideas, but that they are now less exciting. So there are two things that I immediately think when I hear him say this. First of all, is this a strategy that you and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer agreed to at your what to do about Bernie dinners? Is this what you decided would be an effective way to take down Bernie Sanders to sow doubt about the competitiveness of the current front runner. I know Joe Biden will be announcing soon. He probably will have already announced by the time most of you see this video, but one of the front runners here is that your goal to make us think that he's not competitive. Second of all, imagine if Bernie Sanders said this about any of the other candidates. Imagine if he said, "You know what? Pete Buttigieg, I doubt he could beat Donald Trump." There would be universal condemnation from the establishment. They would be screeching about this, saying, "Bernie, how could you do that? Why would you float this idea that someone from the Democratic Party isn't competitive. Why would you so doubt about one of our candidates, Bernie? But because it's Pete Buttigieg, I'm assuming he will get a pass. Now, the problem with him saying this is that in spite of how he may feel, well, it is the case that Bernie Sanders is very much so competitive against Donald Trump, because when you look at 2020 hypothetical matchups, Bernie Sanders is beating Donald Trump by a larger margin than Pete Buttigieg. So really, he should be worrying about his own chances against Donald Trump and not thinking about Bernie's. Now, to be fair, we do have less data about Buttigieg's chances, but nonetheless, with the available information that we have at our disposal, it does seem as if Bernie Sanders, statistically speaking, would fare better against Donald Trump than Pete Buttigieg. Now, you can also make the case that, you know, Hillary Clinton was polling about as well as Bernie Sanders is currently polling against Donald Trump in head-to-head -head matchups, but what you also have to do is look at how he fares in particular states that Hillary Clinton was not able to win, namely the Rust Belt. Now, according to this Tolchin research poll, Bernie beats Trump by 11, 10, and 8 points in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, respectively. And according to Real Clear Politics, Bernie has an 8-point lead over Donald Trump in Michigan, a 4-point lead over Donald Trump in Wisconsin, and a 10-point lead over him in Pennsylvania. And in Pete's home state, Bernie beats Trump by an average of 2.7 points. And in other key states, Trump would need to win in order to maintain the White House, Bernie also beats Trump there. So, for example, in Ohio, Bernie beats Trump by one point. In Florida, Bernie beats Trump by three points. Now, honestly, I don't really feel comfortable talking about polling data at this stage in the process this early because polling data is incredibly unreliable this far out. It's likely to not remain static. I'm I'm positive it's going to change. So, I don't necessarily think that we should rely exclusively on the data. But with that being said, with 
the information we have available, does it say that Bernie Sanders is competitive against Donald Trump at this point in time? Absolutely. So with Pete Buttigieg trying to sow doubt against Bernie Sanders' chances against Donald Trump, not only is he statistically inaccurate, but he is doing something that is tactical. I don't think he truly believes personally that Bernie would not be able to defeat Donald Trump. I think any reasonable person can see that Bernie would fare very well against Donald Trump. But what he's doing is trying to sow doubts about someone who is probably his biggest competition. Because if he is smart, I'm sure he's expecting Joe Biden to face plant. So he knows now, let's target Bernie ahead of time because that's going to be our best bet if we want to, you know, win this nomination. We've got to take down Bernie. So I think this is strategic for him. But at the same time, this defeats this idea that we need to keep this clean. We shouldn't allow the Democratic primary process to devolve into name-calling and insults and, you know, trying to besmirch the characters and electability and the chances of everyone else. I mean, they're the ones who say this all the time. We're not the ones who say that. They're the ones who say this. The establishment, that is. The, you know, political class, the elite class, but yet they can't even follow their own standards. So Pete Buttigieg is someone who, more and more... I dislike him. The more that I learn about him, the less I like him. I was initially impressed by the way he was referring to policies like Medicare for All, and I like some of his policies, you know, talking about electoral reform, abolishing the Electoral College, packing the Supreme Court, and depoliticizing it, but by and large, this individual is just too centrist, and you can tell that he is currently high on his own farts, because to attack the frontrunner, to attack someone who's incredibly popular, and really to piss off the voters who you may need in the event you secure the party's nomination is a really stupid thing to do. I mean, we saw what happened in 2016 when Hillary Clinton basically spat in the eyes of the Democratic Party's base. So for you to start shit-talking this early about someone who is beloved, I mean, you can do that, that's on you, but uh, don't expect it to pay off for you. Because if you are going to punch Bernie Sanders, expect us to counterpunch. And I'll leave that there. So 2020 presidential candidate John Delaney. <laughs> just released an anti-Trump campaign ad that I think will undoubtedly ruin Donald Trump. I'm sure that this will be the final nail in his coffin because what he is pledging to do, what John Delaney wants to do is so profound, so powerful that he's proposing we all hit Donald Trump where it hurts. This is what he is suggesting that we do.
Got him. <laughs> he, Donald Trump will never be able to recover from this. <laughs> like, who in John Delaney's campaign thought that this was a good idea? Who <laughs> was proposing this and thinking, look, We've got to go savage. We've got to play offense here. And we need to hit Donald Trump where it hurts. Let's get people to unfollow Donald Trump. <laughs> That'll show him. <laughs> Let's not call him out for doing really horrible things. Let's not call him out specifically for vetoing the bill that would withdraw U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen. Let's not actually critique him because he chose to give himself a tax cut. Let's not hit him for being overtly corrupt and obstructing justice 10 times, according to the Mueller report. Let's unfollow him. I mean, centrist Democrats are so bizarre. They are the weirdest people because this is what they think is actually going to land. This is what they think will get Donald Trump. And let's look at this tweet here. This has 113 likes. I mean, and he's trying to start this hashtag. What do you think you're going to do? I mean, I can make a random tweet that is the most idiotic, benign thing ever, and it would get more traction than this. But I want to go through some of these um, responses because the internet pretty much did what I expected it to do, and they clowned on him relentlessly. This person is following John Delaney. <laughs> This person sharing a Simpsons meme. I'm helping. Huh, this odd map said I wouldn't encounter a dumb fuck for another two miles. That's pretty savage. This person clowning on. <laughs> this is so hilarious. Um, Don't hang your feet off the bed at night. If you do, the devil will eat them. <laughs> I mean, these are these are all savage. Um. I just, I don't understand. <laughs> just going through some of these. I don't understand how anyone can think that this would land. We have progressive voice at the bottom here saying, really, bro? Look, this is, this is beyond parody. To run a presidential campaign, to think that this is the type of thing that's going to land. I don't even, I don't even know what to say about that. Um... Oops, sorry. I wanted to show you guys something because I thought that this would be appropriate. I've been saving this image that I found. Um, I, I didn't create it myself. I, I found it online. <laughs> wink, wink. And I wanted to show it to you guys. So um, Kyle Kalinske said that his nickname for John Delaney is nutsack boy now does this kind of violate the premise that nicknames for presidential candidates have to be value neutral yes am i willing to give kyle a pass for that because his nickname of john delaney was so amazing yes because the nickname nutsack boy is absolutely i think it's apt that's all i'll say about that because you take this image you make john delaney and his twin brother faceless and I think it's pretty appropriate. Now, when we do this, you know, it's evident. <laughs> oh, oh, fuck. It's evident 
that Kyle Quinn, the best nickname ever. I need to um, absolutely take this off the screen before I get a um, age restriction on my video. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. I need to share the tweet that was accompanied with this video. We've had enough of real Donald Trump's bullying and lies. Help Team Delaney take away his voice by unfollowing him on Twitter now. Hashtag unfollow Trump. John, you have to suspend your campaign. This is embarrassing at this point. It's absolutely embarrassing and i genuinely feel bad for making fun of him and please understand that i am fully aware of the fact that this video is useless you are learning nothing um there's no policy substance here whatsoever but at the same time it does speak to the vacuousness of john delaney because he could choose to hit donald trump i mean there are dozens of things you can hit donald trump for if you want to attack donald trump which you should but to suggest that we unfollow donald trump I mean, what do you think this will accomplish? Let's say, at best, you get 10,000 people to unfollow Donald Trump. I mean, I'm assuming that Twitter's purge of bots was more effective than this campaign is. I I don't know what else to say about this. This video, six minutes now, it's gone on too long. Um, God have mercy on uh, your soul, John Delaney, because only somebody who is completely and utterly lost would think that something like this would be effective and would constitute as hitting Trump where it hurts. Jesus Christ. I'm tempted to pull up the uh, picture again, but I'm not going to do that because I already know this video is going to get age-restricted, if not outright deleted by YouTube, because I showed the um, video that I think, or the picture rather, that embodies um, the nickname that Kyle Kalinske gave to John Delaney, but... I will, I'll leave that there. Um, I apologize for putting you through this, but I, um, I had to share. Hopefully you, uh, can understand and, uh, forgive me, <laughs> viewers of the Humanist Report and, uh, fellow Bernard brothers. <laughs> For those of you that tuned in to CNN's five town halls on Monday night, you'd know that the Boston bomber came up. Now, the reason why he came up was specifically because we were talking about voting rights and the expansion of suffrage to prisoners. Now, as a progressive, I was incredibly pleased to see candidates being asked about voting rights, specifically for prisoners. The problem is that the way that the CNN hosts who asked these questions framed it was so that way, no matter how you answered the question, it was lose-lose. If you said that you support prisoners' rights in terms of them being able to vote, well then, it looked as if you were sympathetic towards the Boston bomber and had some strange affinity for him. However, if you said that you don't support the rights of prisoners voting, then clearly it shows that you're not very progressive and you're not savvy and you're clearly not knowledgeable about this particular issue and why it's important for us to expand voting rights to 100% of the population. Now, I want to show you the answers that the three candidates gave who were asked this question. I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. People who are in Convicted in prison, like the Boston Marathon bomber, on death row, people who are convicted of sexual assault, they should be able to vote? 
I think we should have that conversation. While incarcerated? Yeah. No, I don't think so. So who's right here? Well, obviously, Bernie Sanders is the most right. He answered in a very principled way. And even though he knew he was going to be smeared because of this answer, he held true to principle. Because obviously, I think he was cognizant of the fact that they were trying to headline farm. They were fishing for a particular headline and they got exactly what they wanted. Now, Kamala Harris, she didn't necessarily shut out the possibility. She said, this is a conversation that we should have. I kind of see that as a dodge, but nonetheless, she was still lumped in with Bernie Sanders. Pete Buttigieg, he just is flat out wrong. Because the thing about this here, even if he got applause from the audience, it communicates to me that he doesn't actually know enough about voting rights or he simply doesn't care about voting rights. But nonetheless, we'll get into that. But I want to look at the headlines that were produced after this town hall uh, was finished filming. The National Review writes, Sanders and Harris, we should restore the Boston Marathon Bombers voting rights. The Hill states 2020 candidates say Boston Marathon Bomber should be able to vote from prison. And of course, they have a photograph of him. They're framing this as Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris specifically want the Boston Bomber to be able to vote. Just him. So do you see what's happening? They're distracting you from a really complex, nuanced, and important conversation that we should be having as a country. Now, what CNN did here was they teed up an attack on these Democratic Party primary contenders, and then Fox News did exactly what you'd expect them to do. They smeared Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and made it seem as if they are now pro-terrorist. Does this mean that you would support enfranchising people like the Boston Marathon bomber, a convicted terrorist and murderer? But I do believe that even if they are in jail, they're paying their price to society, but that should not take away their inherent American right to participate in our democracy. Well, our next guest was one of the first firefighters to respond to the Boston Marathon bombing, which killed three people and injured more than 260. The Democrats tackle stuff that truly matters. Can our terrorists here still vote? Terrible people. So how terrible is Sanders talking about? Cannibals? Convicted spies? How about terrorists who kill children? Oh, yes, said Bernie Sanders. They get the vote, too. We're going to let sex offenders, murderers, terrorists vote from prison. What a plan for America's future. And that is only one candidate. So do you understand what's happening? Do you see how the media is incredibly disingenuous and how they can monopolize a particular discussion to reframe it to make someone who they don't like look bad? Do you see what's happening here? This is exactly what priming looks like. It's when the media deliberately creates a narrative that makes you think about a certain political issue in a very specific way, so that way when you start thinking about the possibility of letting prisoners vote, you're now thinking about this in terms of the Boston bomber. So whenever we talk about voting rights, whenever we talk about universal suffrage, whenever we talk about consolidating democracy and making our democracy more equitable and opening it up so everyone has representation, this is what they want you to think about. The Boston bomber. So this is how propaganda works. This is how the media can completely retool a specific subject in order to serve a very specific purpose. And understand that it's not just voting rights where they can use this argument. This is applicable to basically any universal or redistributive economic policy. They can say, oh, will you support Medicare for all? Does that mean that you support Medicare for all for pedophiles and rapists? You support free college? Does that mean that you support free college for 
sex offenders as well? Do you see what they're doing here? They want you to deny yourself and all of society justice so that way we can make sure that the people who are the worst in society don't benefit. But this is not a very intelligent way to be talking about voting rights, and it's why other countries have expanded voting rights and they now allow prisoners to vote. And that includes Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Israel, Ireland, Norway, Spain, and Sweden, just to name a few. And in fact, Norway literally allows prisoners to partake in television debates because they focus more on rehabilitation and second chances than punishing people, which is what we do in the United States. And I want to share a couple of tweets that really demonstrate that there's an inherently hypocritical undertone with this entire conversation because to suggest that Bernie Sanders, who's taking a pro-democracy stance here, is in the wrong it undermines what they've been trying to promote. At that very same town hall, remember that a supposedly centrist individual from Harvard asked him why he wants Soviet-style authoritarian communism in the United States. So, they're saying that he's authoritarian, but simultaneously, he wants to expand democracy? Do you understand how they're trying to use two different smears that actually are mutually exclusive and conflict with one another? As this tweet puts it, Bernie takes heat from people who wrongly conflate socialism with authoritarianism and then the same people attack him for saying people in jail should maintain their right to vote. Pick a lane. And then this tweet from me also highlights the absurdity. Dick Cheney, George W. Bush, and Henry Kissinger are mass murderers that still have the right to vote, but nobody seems outraged about that. Nobody who seems outraged by this, people like Meghan McCain, they don't want the Boston bomber to vote and they think that we should make sure that all prisoners are not allowed to vote just to make sure that the Boston bomber specifically is denied the right to vote. But with that being said, they're perfectly fine with war criminals who have the blood of innocents on their hands, thousands of innocents on their hands. Those people can vote. Those people can walk freely in society. Dick Cheney, uh, George W. Bush, who should be in prison for the rest of their lives because of the war crimes that they committed. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney literally catalyzed the civil war in Iraq. They are responsible directly for thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths, and nobody has a problem with them voting. So if you are against murderers voting, then you actually do have to be consistent here. But really, I don't even want to go down that path because this isn't about whether or not we should allow murderers to vote. This is a broader conversation that we're having about voting rights. And I want to share a thread on Twitter from an individual who does a phenomenal job explaining how this isn't about the Boston Marathon bomber. This is about how our racially biased criminal justice system targets black and brown Americans. Quote, what annoys me about this question is that about three in every 1,000 rapes result in jail time. Most rapists never lose the eligibility to vote. So incarcerated people having the right to vote isn't about terrible people voting. It's about whether you believe people who are disproportionately oppressed by an unjust system still deserve to elect their representative. I think yes. I reject the idea of depending on an unjust system that is racist, sexist, genderist, classist, etc. to determine who is eligible 
to vote or not. By that logic, naturally, richer and whiter rapists basically never have to worry about losing the right to vote because they're like never incarcerated. But the poor black and brown ones? Sorry, no votes for you. We have rapists in our governments, schools, police forces, churches, cough, White House, cough. They're everywhere and they vote. And don't get me started on low conviction rates for pedophiles. So the overall point is that terrible people will vote no matter what. But you need to make a choice. Do you care more about democracy or do you care about punishing the people who were caught committing crimes? People who oftentimes are black and brown and get locked up at a higher rate than their white peers. I want to share some more stats that I think really paint a more broad picture. So the United States has more people in jail per capita than any other country. The prison population exploded as a result of bad policies passed, such as the war on drugs and the war on crime. The number of people in jail for drug-related offenses increased exponentially since 1980. The number of people serving life sentences has also increased, and blacks and Latinos are locked up at far higher rates than their white counterparts. Now, on top of that, the prison population is counted in census data, which means that same data that counts prisoners is used to draw congressional districts, but yet they don't get to vote. So we're literally seeing effectively the repeat of the three-fifths clause, and people are A-OK with it. And I think Bernie Sanders also demonstrates how felon disenfranchisement is another form of voter suppression. South Carolina has a higher incarceration rate than any country on earth. African Americans are 27% of the state population, but 60% of the prison population. Our racist criminal justice system disenfranchises millions. This is quite simply voter suppression. Now, on top of that, there's a legal and I think constitutionally sound argument for allowing prisoners the right to vote. As Corey Brettschneider of Politico reports, telling prisoners they cannot vote is premised on the idea that convicts undergo a sort of temporary civic death, a suspension of normal rights as citizens while they are behind bars. And indeed, that was once true of prisoners in this country. But the federal government has made strides away from the notion of civic death over the past century. In recent years, the Supreme Court and Congress have affirmed a variety of constitutional rights for prisoners. They have rights of religious freedom under a 2000 federal law. Prisoners also retain some First Amendment free speech rights to hold and express political opinions. Most important, the Supreme Court decided that prisoners cannot have their citizenship stripped as a punishment for a crime. As Justice Earl Warren wrote in the 1958 case, Trop v. Doles, citizenship is not a right that expires upon misbehavior. Although he did acknowledge this, Warren's insight shows us why ex-felons deserve the right to vote. If prisoners remain citizens and retain their civic status throughout their sentences, then it follows that prisoners should enjoy the most basic of their civil rights, the right to cast a ballot. Disenfranchising them creates a class of people still subject to the laws of the United States. They were, after all, punished under that law, but without a voice in the way they're governed, not unlike taxation without representation. In the end, restoring these basic rights is not only the right thing to do constitutionally, it could also present positive solutions to a major national political problem. The prison system would be more effective if it were accountable to its constituents. Prisoners have often committed heinous crimes, but they remain a part of our democratic polity, and we can learn from what they have to say. And the problem that this would help solve 
is voter apathy. We live in a country with one of the lowest voter turnout rates in the developed world. And that is absolutely a disaster because the health of democracy depends on participation. And if you have half of people in this country essentially not voting, that could spell disaster. It means our democracy may not be able to survive. So if you believe in democracy, then understand this isn't about the Boston bomber. I don't think it is just to say that hundreds of thousands of people potentially should be denied the right to vote just to make sure we don't let people like the Boston bomber vote. So when you see media outlets trying to push this narrative, understand that it's propaganda and all that they're trying to do is dupe you into taking an undemocratic position. So however this is framed. I'm glad that Bernie Sanders did not take the bait, and I wish that Kamala Harris would have come out more forcefully because she knew what was happening. She knew that when Don Lemon was asking her that question, these types of headlines would be produced. Pete Buttigieg, however, he decided to take a more cowardly stance and not stand up for what's right because he was worried about the potential political ramifications. Well, look, I'll keep it simple here. If you believe in democracy, then that means that 100% of the population deserves to vote. It's that simple. And if you honestly think that it's worth denying suffrage and reenfranchising hundreds of thousands of people serving just to make sure that the worst in society doesn't vote, then I really question your line of thinking. I really do. Because... Even if somebody like the Boston Bomber votes, overall, that's one vote, but the negative impact of that would be mitigated by other people voting in prison and exercising their right to vote. And what's the implication with the Boston Bomber voting? Let's say he votes. Who's he going to vote for? Another murderer? I mean, <laughs> look what Donald Trump is doing. In the Middle East and North Africa, he's droning these countries illegally. He just vetoed a bill that would have stopped the United States government from being complicit in Saudi's genocide in Yemen. So don't pretend like murderers aren't already voting and serving in government. This isn't about the Boston bomber. Don't get distracted. This is about voting rights. And shame on the media, shame on CNN, shame on Fox News for trying to distract so they can smear these candidates for taking a principled and just stand here. It's disgusting, but don't fall for it because they're trying to dupe you. Don't let them do that. So lately, we all know that Bernie Sanders and even Kamala Harris, to an extent, has been taking a beating by the press because they were asked this question at CNN's town halls about whether or not their extension of voting rights to prisoners would mean that someone like the Boston Marathon bomber would be able to vote. And because of the way they answered that question, the media is priming people to only think very narrowly about this issue in terms of should the Boston bomber be allowed to vote. But I've been trying to explain that it's not about the Boston bomber. This is about acknowledging the reality that we have a racially biased criminal justice system. And if we want to start righting the wrongs and reenfranchising Americans, then we do need to allow prisoners the right to vote. Now, thankfully, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out and she 
made a defense of this position, and I think she did a really good job at making a persuasive case as to why we need to support the rights of prisoners to be able to vote. She tweeted, To avoid looking completely and utterly out of touch with the reality of our prison system, instead of asking should the Boston bomber have the right to vote, try should a non-violent person stopped with a dime bag lose the right to vote. Because that question reflects way more people. Reminder, slavery led to Jim Crow and redlining, which then led to the war on drugs and mass incarceration. Black Americans and people of color are far more likely to be convicted and sentenced longer than white Americans for similar crimes. Our system routinely criminalizes poverty and exonerates wealth. Many rebut the voting question by saying, well, those people shouldn't be jailed. Glad you feel that way, but the truth is, the U.S. incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere in the world, even more than China. Our system is built to disenfranchise people of color. And she then showed two cases of mothers committing fraud in order to get their kids into school. And you can see how the rich white woman is let off easier while the poor black woman is punished more heavily. So what AOC is pointing to here is how institutional racism is a very real thing. And racial bias is embedded in our system. It's not, you know, an unintentional flaw. It's a product of our system. It's a feature. So if we want to truly be a more just society, then this is one of the many ways that we can be more just. Now, with that being said, Kyle Kalinske made a video about this, and I think that his take is incredibly fascinating and important because he approached this from a different angle than I took. So for me, for those of you who've seen my video on this, I defended Bernie Sanders' position, but the way that Kyle approached this was, is really important because he talks about the strategic angle and how Bernie Sanders should have answered this question in a way that couldn't allow him to fall into this trap, essentially, where he should have just swatted away this question. And I do think that because this question was a trap, you couldn't answer this and come out on top. What Kyle says about this is incredibly important. Progressives, they're on the right side of every single issue, but I think that we have a problem with marketing some of our ideas because the media, I mean, within the course of a couple of days, they took a very nuanced and complex conversation that we were having about voting rights, and they turned this into a conversation about the Boston bomber. So what we need to do is be more politically savvy and strategically astute and acknowledge that if we take the bait, then all we're going to do is allow the media to monopolize the conversation that we're trying to have. Now, that doesn't mean that you sacrifice your principles that's not really what kyle is saying we're alluding to here but what he is saying is we need to get better essentially at marketing this is what i took away from the video and i would encourage everyone to watch it i'll link to it down below um we need to get better at answering questions and acknowledge the reality that politics is often a pr game and that irritates me because i don't want politics to be a pr game i want to have good faith arguments with people about the policy issues and I want to state my position, but the problem is that it's not that simple. It's just not that simple. We need to portray our ideas in a way that is easily digestible for the American population. So for example, if you're progressive, you've been screaming about single payer for decades. 
But it didn't start to catch on until we started to reframe the conversation and talk about it as Medicare for All. Because when you say single payer to someone, it's incredibly unfamiliar. It sounds foreign because it quite literally is foreign, right? We don't have that in this country. But when you start calling it Medicare for All, that is something that people can tolerate the idea of because they know what Medicare is. We have Medicare in this country. They know that they love it. It has a couple of shortcomings currently because obviously people need Medicare Advantage to fill in the gaps. But if you communicate to them, look, we're willing to fix Medicare or not necessarily fix it, but close those gaps and expand it to everyone, they can visualize that in a better way. So I think that's a lesson that is important and we need to do this with other policies because there are policy positions that we take that aren't necessarily popular. We're, we're lucky that a lot of our ideas are populist positions and it's easy to make the case for those, but for more um, controversial positions that we take, like wanting to abolish the death penalty, we need to be more savvy in how we present these ideas. And that means not taking the bait if it's presented to us in a way where we're not going to come out as winners you know, and it's tough to anticipate how these questions will be framed, but we've got to do better, I think, at playing the PR game. And I hate to say that. I don't want to talk about marketing. I want to talk about policy because I'm more of a wonky nerd than a PR advertising person. But I mean, with that being said, that's the game of politics. And if you want to win, you've got to play the game, right? So, you know, um, I, I'm not a populist. Like, I just so happen to take ideas that are incredibly popular, but I've never been on the side of saying, well, I only support policies that are popular because a lot of times Americans don't get it right. They're on the wrong side of history. They were on the wrong side of history on a number of civil rights issues, right? Slavery, interracial marriage, gay marriage. So I'm not someone who's only going to take a policy position because it's popular. But with that being said, because I have so many more, um, I guess you could say fringe ideas, because technically they are if they're not supported by most people. Since I have more fringe ideas in comparison with the electorate, like I support reparations, I support prisoners voting, I support ending the death penalty. I think that, you know, for someone like me, and just progressives at large, we need to do a better job at marketing our ideas. And we need to we need to make it so people can empathize and sympathize with our position more. Because if we don't do that, then we allow for situations like this, where they can take our position and make it about the Boston bomber when that's not really the conversation that we care about. We don't care about the Boston bomber. So I think that also what Kyle points out here is that what was lacking in Bernie's answer was the human approach because he brought up the Michael Dukakis um, answer on the death penalty, which we all admit, I think it's universally acknowledged that he face-planted when he answered that question. Um, but we need to make it more human. If Bernie would have said, look, I think that someone like the Boston bomber is a morally reprehensible human being. And of course, I don't personally want him to vote, but I don't want to have a conversation about him. Like if Bernie tailored his answer to really um, address the main crux of the person who was asking that question, I think it would have come off a lot better. So I think that what Kyle's point is in approaching this 
strategically is that we've got to do better. And I wholeheartedly agree. While I think it's important for us to defend the merits of Bernie's argument based on principle, we do have to simultaneously acknowledge that our boy's got to do better. He's just got to do better answering questions and marketing his ideas. And for the most part, Bernie does do a phenomenal job at marketing a lot of his progressive ideas. But we've got to grapple with this fact that some of our ideas are not mainstream yet. They're just not. Now, do I think that if we made the case and educated people, they could be mainstream one day? Absolutely. It's just a matter of how we do that. And one thing that Kyle noted that I hadn't previously thought about, which is important, is that what the establishment will try to do going forward is try to draw out some of Bernie's more unpopular stances and really focus on those and hammer away at those stances so you can kind of drive down his populist appeal. So we need to anticipate what's going to happen better, I think. And we've got to adjust. So with that being said, I am unequivocally on the side of allowing prisoners to vote. But I think that we need to learn a little bit from this week. And Bernie, I hope, takes away, you know, something from this week in that he just he's more astute and savvy in answering some of these questions that are gotcha questions. I mean, again, there's no way you can come out on top answering that question. So at this point in time, what do you do? You reframe the question, answer the question that you just reframed because it's a biased question, right? You're asking a very leading question that you want a very specific answer to. You want Bernie to say, I want the Boston bomber to vote. So Bernie needs to realize that this is going to be something that comes up and he's got to adjust his strategy to make sure that he maintains control of the conversation and he's able to continuously monopolize the discussion with regard to all of these issues. But I'm glad that AOC made the case. Um, but yeah, overall, unfortunately, we have to play the PR game if we want to win because you can't win unless you play the PR game. And it's that simple. So um, I'm glad that AOC made the case because morally we're right. It's just a matter of convincing people that our position is in fact the just position and we've got to educate people. Simple as that. Well, we all knew that this day was coming sooner or later and it is officially here. Former Vice President Joe Biden has officially jumped into the 2020 race and we've got quite a bit to talk about. But before we get to that, this is his announcement video. Charlottesville, Virginia is home to the author of one of the great documents in human history. We know it by heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We've heard it so often, it's almost a cliche, but it's who we are. We haven't always lived up to these ideals. Jefferson himself didn't, but we have never before walked away from them. Charlottesville is also home to a defining moment for this nation in the last few years. It was there on August of 2017 we saw Klansmen and white supremacists and neo-Nazis come out in the open. Their crazed faces, illuminated by torches, veins bulging and burying the fangs of racism chanting the same anti-Semitic bile heard across Europe in the 30s. And they were met by a courageous group of Americans, and a violent clash ensued. 
and a brave young woman lost her life. And that's when we heard the words of the President of the United States that stunned the world and shocked the conscience of this nation. He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides? With those words, the President of the United States assigned a moral equivalence between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. And in that moment, I knew the threat to this nation was unlike any I had ever seen in my lifetime. I wrote at the time that we're in the battle for the soul of this nation. Well, that's even more true today. We are in the battle for the soul of this nation. I believe history will look back on four years of this president and all he embraces as an aberrant moment in time. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation, who we are. And I cannot stand by and watch that happen. The core values of this nation are standing in the world, our very democracy. Everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Folks, America is an idea. An idea that's stronger than any army, bigger than any ocean, more powerful than any dictator or tyrant. It gives hope to the most desperate people on earth. It guarantees that everyone is treated with dignity and gives hate no safe harbor. It instills in every person in this country the belief that no matter where you start in life, there's nothing you can achieve if you work at it. That's what we believe. And above all else, that's what's at stake in this election. We can't forget what happened in Charlottesville. Even more important, we have to remember who we are. This is America. So I'll be honest, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, but nonetheless, I still feel as if he doesn't acknowledge that to truly be competitive against Donald Trump, you have to do more than just be anti-Trump. So as you probably noticed, there wasn't a single policy position in that video. Not one. Now, I think it was well-produced. I think that the music was probably on point and may have helped the video resonate with people because it invokes that emotional response. But we've been reiterating this as progressives. You can't just be anti-Trump. You can't, because that's exactly what Hillary Clinton did. You have to lay out a different vision. And he talks about how, you know, we are in the battle for the soul of this nation. And he's kind of alluding to the fact that we have a president that is openly fascistic. So I understand that it's important to call that out. But at the same time, Joe Biden's neoliberal policies is exactly what bred the desperation that led to the state that we're currently in. Because of his policies, because of his milquetoast neoliberal centrism, the country got desperate and they elected someone as loony as Donald Trump. And that's exactly what happens. When you deprive people of basic necessities, they start to get desperate. They become susceptible to radicalization. And then they may opt for someone who's a monster, who's openly fascistic, like Donald Trump. 
So if you truly want to combat what we see now, you've got to have an alternate vision. And Joe Biden just doesn't have that. Now, to his credit, there is issues that he alludes to supporting on his website, but it's not very specific. So, for example, he mentions health, quote, insurance as a right, which I don't really even know what that is supposed to mean because health insurance isn't the goal. Health care is the goal, but he says that health insurance is a right nonetheless, and he states that he's in support of expanding the Affordable Care Act vaguely, but doesn't get any more specific than that. He wants to guarantee American skills and education, but nothing more on that. He talks about workers having bargaining power, but doesn't say what he'd do specifically to empower and protect unions. And really, there's there's nothing new there. It doesn't feel like he wants to take the country in a new direction. And that's because he very explicitly is creating the strategy that is not about taking the country in a new direction. He's basically saying, I want to be President Obama's third term. And I'm not joking about that, because as Thomas Beaumont and Julie Pace report, Joe Biden is finalizing the framework for a White House campaign that would cast him as an extension of Barack Obama's presidency and political movement. He's betting that the majority of Democratic voters are eager to return to the style and substance of that era, and that they'll view him as the best option to lead the way back. The former vice president has begun testing the approach as he nears an expected campaign launch later this month. This was obviously written before he announced. After remarks at a recent labor union event, Biden said he was proud to be an Obama-Biden Democrat, coining a term that his advisors define as pragmatic and progressive, and a bridge between the working class white voters who have long had an affinity for Biden and the younger, more diverse voters who backed Obama in historic numbers. Biden's strategy will test whether anyone other than Obama can recreate the coalition that delivered him to the White House twice, but it was something Hillary Clinton was unable to do in 2016, and it will thrust the 44th president's legacy into the center of the 2020 campaign. I just don't think this is a valid strategy. Because we saw it play out, we already have a test. Hillary Clinton tried to campaign as an extension of Obama, and she lost. Let me tell you this, as someone who voted for Obama twice, the second time obviously a little bit more reluctant than the first. I am not enthusiastic about a third Obama term. I'm not looking to see Obama replicated by Joe Biden or even Obama himself. What I'm looking for is a new direction because the trajectory that we are on is not working out so well for a lot of Americans. The economy may have started to recover after 2008, However, for working class Americans, it hasn't been very great for them. Most Americans, or at least half, make less than 30000 per year. They don't have enough to cover the cost of a $400 emergency. So just staying the course that we were on when Obama was president is not enough. And it really demonstrates that Joe Biden is so out of touch that he doesn't get that. And we all know he's doing these fundraisers with wealthy donors, a Comcast lobbyist, so he doesn't understand that you can't craft a message that is tailored to working class voters if you don't actually talk to working class voters. Talking with elites and oligarchs isn't going to help you understand what we need. But he doesn't get that. Now, on top of that, basically he's been on the wrong side of every single issue 
throughout the course of his career because, as this tweet explains, he opposes single-payer currently. He opposes cannabis legalization. He supports the death penalty. He wrote the 1994 crime bill. He voted for the Defense of Marriage Act. He voted for NAFTA, the Iraq War, the Patriot Act. He voted to make it harder to eliminate student debt at the behest of Wall Street. So you've got to understand there are all these issues that are going to come up. They will be discussed throughout the duration of the primary process. And on top of that, he needs to explain why he performed the way he did when he was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Anita Hill testimony. It was awful. And on top of that, we recently learned that his past is a little darker than we thought because, quote, it was more than four decades ago as a battle raged across the country and in Congress over sending white students to majority black schools and black students to majority white schools, often far away from their own neighborhoods. Biden forcefully opposed the government's role in trying to integrate schools, saying he favored desegregation but believed busing did not achieve equal opportunity. In a series of never-before-published letters from Biden, him, which were reviewed by CNN, the strength of his opposition to busing comes into sharper focus, particularly how he followed the lead and sought support from some of the Senate's most fervent segregationists. So for someone who has, one, been on the wrong side, basically, reliably of every single issue, who is fighting to protect the status quo that hasn't been working, which is why people opted for Trump in the first place, which is why there were a lot of precincts that previously voted Obama, but then flipped to Trump. For him to say, you know, let's do a third term of Obama, it demonstrates that he is painfully out of touch. And I don't really have to convince you how out of touch he is because every time he opens his mouth, he pisses off more people. You know, he talked down to millennials. And right after he was accused of inappropriately touching numerous women, he brushed it off by joking about it. I mean, this is someone who is so far removed from the needs of the Democratic Party's base that I just don't see, I can't fathom how he'd be successful. Now, of course, there's the argument, Mike, he's pulling ahead, even of Bernie in some polls. But what I really think that is um, derivative of it is just the mere fact that people view the Obama era as an era of stability, as an era that was scandal-free. Now, that's not necessarily the reality, but when you juxtapose Obama's legacy with Trump, of course, Obama is preferable, so people think of Biden as the good old days with Obama. But I think that the more he speaks, they'll be reminded that this is someone who is out of touch, who's clueless, who's been the establishment for decades and is not going to give us what we need. And in the event we get more neoliberalism that he'd inevitably give us some, you know, incremental policy advances, then I can only anticipate that in four years or eight years down the line, we'd get someone worse than Donald Trump, a President Ted Nugent or a President Louis Gohmert, because that wouldn't surprise me. So Joe Biden is not the right person for this day and age, and I hope that other people can see that, but you know, we'll see. That's why as progressives, we've got to make the case for Bernie Sanders, because if we want to save the country and stop the radicalization that led to Donald Trump, then we have to have someone who is the antithesis of Trumpism. And that, of course, is Bernie Sanders. 
So as you all know, it's currently the case that the U.S. government, Donald Trump's administration, as well as cable news, they're trying to build a case as to why we should intervene in Venezuela. Now, they may not necessarily say that we should intervene militarily, overtly, but intervene in whatever sense we possibly can, whether it's sanctions, whether it is you know, doing something that undermines that government and how they try to sell this to us is they say, look, this is a humanitarian issue. If you care about human rights, then how could you not want us to step in and save the Venezuelan people from oppression? Well, here's why. Let me share a story with you. This is from Jessica Corbett of Common Dreams. In an unprecedented revelation that highlights the consequences of the seemingly endless war in Afghanistan, the United Nations announced Wednesday that the U.S.-backed forces killed more Afghan civilians than the Taliban and other armed anti-government groups did in the first three months of the year. A new quarterly report from the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan shows that pro-government forces, including both Afghan and international troops, killed 305 civilians from January to the end of March. That compared with 227 civilians killed by anti-government elements such as the Taliban and ISIS. There were 49 unattributable deaths, which includes those caught in crossfire. Now, when you look at the bar graph that was referenced in this article, as you can see, U.S.-backed forces killed a majority at 53% of all deaths within the first quarter of 2019. That's 305 people. Anti-government forces killed 39%, and the unattributable deaths currently sit at 8% overall, and that's 49 deaths in total. So this is exactly why you should never believe the U.S. government and cable news pundits when they tell you that we need to intervene for humanitarian reasons because when we do that we just make matters worse now theoretically speaking i would be in favor of humanitarian intervention in the event i actually had any trust in the u.s government but i don't currently there is a genocide going on in myanmar against rohingya muslims in an ideal world i would love the u.s government to step in and get them to stop that but do i trust that the government could actually do that no they'd only make matters worse so understand that the reality of the situation is that if somebody tells you we need to intervene for humanitarian reasons we're just going to make matters worse now you can say, you know, you can argue along the lines of the Sam Harris defense and say, well, our intentions are pure. We're never trying to kill more people. It doesn't matter. Functionally, if we cause more harm than good by intervening, our stance should by default be don't intervene. Just be non-interventionist. Because even if it makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable to sit by and see things happen in the world that I would like to stop, understand that when you say the U.S. government should intervene, you're greenlighting more deaths and destruction because that's what our military causes. Now, understand this. As commander-in-chief, the buck stops with Donald Trump. The buck stops with him. He is in the most powerful position in the world, and he could stop all of this. But he has not, and in fact, his actions have exacerbated the problem. Why? Because he's literally taken action to loosen the rules of engagement when it comes to air wars, drones, for example. So our bombing, since he took office, 
has become increasingly indiscriminate and opaque. So this is the result of Donald Trump's policies. He also increased drone strikes by 400%. His very first military raid led to the death of an American girl. So there is absolutely no justification for American wars, including humanitarian wars, because there's no such thing as a humanitarian war if the U.S. is getting involved. That's just the reality. And shout out to Tulsi Gabbard, who actually states this very explicitly. There's no such thing as a humanitarian war. Humanitarian wars is basically used to justify intervention that ends up leading to more devastation and deaths than if we just left it alone. Because remember, what was the argument? You know, in addition to weapons of mass destruction, once they couldn't make that argument when the evidence didn't pan out, they were saying, well, you know, Saddam Hussein is a very bad person. He's oppressing his people. They said the same thing about Gaddafi in Libya. And if you look at those situations, we made matters worse. We catalyzed a civil war in Iraq, in Libya. They literally have open slave trades now because of us. Now, that's not to say that Gaddafi was a wonderful person, but d did he bring stability? Could he have prevented literally slave trades and slave markets? Yeah. So the point that I want to get across to people is that we need to mind our own business. Mind our own business. Because, again, I'd love to say that I trust that my government could do good. I'd love to say that my government could intervene and stop atrocities from happening. But the fact of the matter is that they can't. And they don't, often by choice. They just make matters worse, they exacerbate conflict, and even if they try to do something where they don't get directly involved, they end up arming the wrong people. And it's clear that nobody understands what's happening in these foreign countries. The amount of intelligence that you receive, the amount of experts you get, does not give you a crystal ball to be able to anticipate the ramifications of our military action in these countries. So with that being said, we just can't do it. We can't intervene. So I really hope that Americans start learning, and I think most already know this, that humanitarian wars and the plea for humanitarian intervention, it's a red herring. It's a Trojan horse for us to intervene and do more harm than good. Hello everyone, I'm here with a very special guest. His name is Jordan Sheridan. He's an author, columnist, journalist, and now documentary filmmaker who is here to talk about his new documentary called Flushing Flint. Jordan, thank you for joining the program. Thanks for having me from my uh, Airbnb uh, right outside Flint. <laughs> hey, that's great. You're where you exactly need to be and um, where I think more journalists should be. Um, if we learned anything from your documentary, because what you expose in this documentary really is a gigantic scandal that, I mean, really the hopes with journalism is that it exposes these scandals so government takes action. So we'll get to that and what the outcome was of your documentary. But first, I do want to share a trailer from the film so that way people know um, what we're talking about here. When the water changed color to brown and orange, your administration said the water was safe. When people reported rashes, hair loss, odor, and even sewage, your administration said the water was safe. When Legionnaire's disease began to infect and later kill numerous citizens, your administration said the water was safe. 
I'm a journalist. I'm just asking residents on this block if the state ever came to test your water. They told me they needed to go to the kitchen sink. That's where they went. They turned the water on, let it run for, like I said, like a minute, and collected their sample. Your results are interesting because 15 parts per billion is the limit. Um, so them telling you to let the water run for that long, that's probably why you were getting such low results. Mm. When they did it, do you remember if they turned the water on and took the sample right away, or did they let it run they first? They let it run a while. They showed up at my door and they handed me a pamphlet and said, okay, it's safe to bathe in before they even went in my house. Have you had any problems health-wise since the water switch? Itching, breaking down, stuff like that. My teeth, yeah, so. And I've had pneumonia. My skin and my hair. I've been getting a lot of boils. Go ahead, get it. Right. Bro, I'm telling you. And I get them like, just, just bro. Yeah. And they were worse. My daughter did have a miscarriage. He was at Heritage Manor went to McLaren, where they had the Legionnaires, my father is dead. They want us out of here. They want to make it a college town, and we are not a fool. We know it. Go up and down the street. Look, look over there. We have a forest in the dadgum city. We can't drink our water. We can't go outside and play. We ain't got no parks. They're just going in, people who don't know EPA regulations, people that are older, people that are younger, people that are poor, whatever. And they're just right in front of them, cheating to try and get a lower number. So who the hell knows what the real numbers are? You always hear that talking point, well, like 3,000 other cities have worse numbers than Flint. I think what we're getting at here is we probably don't know the real lead levels in Flint because they've been flushing out the lead before they test. So can you just give us the rundown overall? What is this about in terms of do we start at the very beginning or do we start at a very specific focus with regard to the Flint water crisis? Yeah, so I want your audience to imagine George W. Bush coming down in that F-16, whatever it was, with the commando suit and declaring mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, think of that in terms of Flint. This is Flint's mission accomplished. Of course, it's different. You know, there's not like hundreds of thousands of people dead. But Bush and his cronies, really Cheney, you know, cooked up intelligence and false stuff to send us to war. Uh, in Flint, what we found, and this was through knocking on 450 doors last summer. Um, so this is not a story of what happened to cause the lead crisis. This is what happened to cover it up. So we found that the numbers that the state of Michigan were sending out, declaring that Flint was once again within EPA regulations for lead, were basically cooked up. Uh, how we found that was originally uh, a little over a year ago, I was in Flint uh, doing another story, and I started talking to re residents for that story. And sometimes you're doing one story and another one, just like you unearth it. So I found out that some, some residents had state officials come to their homes and test their water, and they ran their water first before taking the samples. This might sound like nothing, but it's actually illegal. Uh, if you run the water even for 30 seconds before taking lead and copper samples, you essentially could be flushing out the, the, the thick of the lead because a lot of the lead is actually inside the home. 
So we found that they did this in a few homes. So my partner, Jen, and I, who broke the story with me, decided to just stay in Flint. We were kind of just like, you know, crowdfunding at the time, early days of status quo. Um, and we started knocking on doors. And ultimately, every door we knocked, not every door, but the more doors we knocked, you keep getting the same horrific tale that, yeah, they just cooked the testing. Like they intentionally were sending state officials into these residents' homes. These residents were on the official state testing program. So this state testing program was the focus group. And this is the data they used to declare like Flint's mission accomplished. The water is now meeting EPA regulations. So it was a mix of state officials going in and running the water before taking the sample and state officials telling residents when you test, run the water. So the, 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 the big boilerplate message from this is, A, they cooked the data and testing. B, if they cooked the data and testing, how do we know what the real lead levels are today? This week is the five-year anniversary. So we broke that story in November. That's the documentary showcases Jen and I uh, basically doing like what very few do these days, unfortunately, which is trading our summer at the beach for like door knocking. I mean, you'll, you saw me schwitzing uh, in 100-degree weather. And uh, fortunately, the story is not over because we met with some pretty high-ranking government officials uh, two months ago in Michigan. It's now a Democrat governor, a Democrat AG. And um, I can't go into like so much detail, but they're, they're looking basically at what we found and we'll see what happens from there. That's great. And that's exactly what you want from these types of reports and documentary, you know, filmmaking. One thing that really struck me was as you go through and you talk to dozens of people in the film, you kind of make it very clear that they had this false sense of security where somebody came in, tested their water, they were under the assumption that it was clean because, as you said, they were running the water beforehand, which isn't an accurate way to test it. And then you kind of see on their faces the looks of just horror when they realize, wow, I've been drinking this water, I've been using this water, and it isn't actually safe. And part of the story that was really gut-wrenching for me is when you were talking to people and you were detailing, or really they were detailing, how much medical issues they were having. And one anecdote that really stood out for me was when you spoke to a woman who had recently moved to Flint. She had her daughter there. She was showing all the rashes that the water caused. She had sickle cell anemia and she was in and out of the hospital. And to me, that one really stood out because it, it shows not just how damaging the water is on their bodies, but how quickly it happened. Like she was there for a couple of months and all of these medical issues kind of bubbled up to the surface that maybe they were already predisposed to have certain issues, but to see how quickly the water made them worse, it was horrible. So can you talk a little bit about the medical issues that people were having? Because obviously I'm just kind of pulling out one example, but there was another lady who was experiencing, um, it wasn't epilepsy, she said, I believe, but she was experiencing seizures and they were treating her as if she had epilepsy. And this was all presumably because of the water. So can you talk about some of these medical issues that people have been telling you they've experienced because of the water? Yeah, and I want to make clear the most striking thing that I want people to know, hopefully when they watch the documentary, that mother you told me that you were referencing with the daughter sitting on her lap that mm -hmm. had the white white blisters all over her arms and legs in her ears that was a, right they had just moved into that home in may 2018 she had clear skin it was within two weeks really that they had, she had white blisters this was one month after governor snyder now former governor declared the water restored so wow. what what we're trying to show in this documentary is 
you know, a one-year-old baby after a few weeks in a home is not getting white rashes and blisters from watching television. The yeah. mother bathed her for thirty, uh, for thir almost thirty minutes, because they told her her water was fine. So I think what the documentary will show is we're not talking about the carnage and the disaster that happened five years ago. It's still people are still actively having these rashes. You see people losing hair, uh, people getting nosebleeds, uh, autoimmune issues, this and that. But I think what other people, what people will see for the documentary is because of the false sense of security. One woman, Amanda Jane, she was 35. Uh, she was the one I was talking to on the porch who was in chemo. Mm. She, she never had a health problem in her life, like a cold once in a blue moon, but that's it. She was drinking the water, uh, and then you know it became a national headline, so she stopped for a little bit. A, a Department of Environmental Quality official comes to her home, runs her water for anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute, uh, she doesn't know anything. She doesn't know any better. They were just, like you said, happy that people came to test the water. She gets a slip in the mail, no, no lead. So she goes back to drinking it without a filter because some fixtures filters don't fit over uh, because it's an old faucet or whatever. So she had no filter on, and even people who drink with a filter have still had problems. But uh, because she got that slip of paper from the state environmental agency saying, you know, no lead detection. Well, they probably got that because they ran her water. So I'm not a doctor. I can't say definitively this, you know, X caused Y, but never had a health problem. Uh, in 2016, she gets spots on her kidneys. A few weeks later, she's having heart palpitations, severe fatigue. They find spots on her thyroid. Then it's diagnosed as thyroid cancer. So, again, she has no family history for thyroid cancer. Her doctor said, potentially, it could have started in your kidney, which lead affects your kidney, and moved to your thyroid. So you have resident after resident, including children, who, because the water was declared safe and they shut down the water pods based on this declaration, they can't afford to go buy bottled, bottled water cases and cases because most of them are poor. There's also a lot of people without transportation in Flint, so they're drinking from the tap because it's de declared fine. Well... If the testing, if the if that declaration is based on the manipulated test that we found, well, they could potentially be drinking contaminated water still, and that's what I think people need to see. I think the other part of the documentary that's more human interest, like you said, I mean, you have people with learning disabilities now, children. You have people really with learning, uh, you know, delays. Children who forgot the alphabet, forgot used to be able to count to thirty, now stop at twelve. Yeah. Uh, the one-year-old that you were describing used to say mama now says vava. Right. Um, no, uh, it wasn't shown in the documentary, but I know people still having nosebleeds. I know people, uh, and Jen and I, we were stunned, Mike. We would go, I mean, we really canvassed. We hit 450 doors. Every, almost every block we went, we would find, you know, you knock on one door, they're not home. Somebody else answers, you ask. Oh, you know, do you know if that person's coming home tonight? What time they usually get home? Because maybe we'd come back. They say, oh, they just died. We're not talking like senior citizens. You're talking people 40s, 50s, 60s. So this is, it, it's unfortunately been a silent, continual crisis that's been silent because our corporate media is a bunch of propagandists who, you know, have basically created a new Cold War. And really, even before that, they, they stopped covering this because once Trump came down that escalator, it was, you know, that was it. But you have this happening. And I want to be clear. I mean, this kind of stuff is happening in other cities, too. 
they're gaming the water testing in other cities. And it's really, at, at a certain point, it, it's kind of like, I won't be too strong, but it, it is, in a way, kind of murderous. I mean, you're intentionally testing the wrong way, giving people false numbers. I mean, it's, it's actually a crime to falsify a federal uh, regulatory compliance test. You're giving people false numbers, and then they're drinking the water and potentially getting lead. They had bacterial issues with the water in Flint that wasn't, you know, they only focused on lead, uh, most of the headlines. But there was bacteria, there were TTHMs, which are cancer-causing chemicals, God knows what else. So it, it's really horrifying, and I think what else is horrifying beyond just Flint is this was done really just brazenly. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the state environmental officials were going into these homes testing the wrong way, and they did it because they probably didn't expect anyone to actually follow their steps and knock on doors and talk to people. So that's why I always tell my viewers, like, listen, corruption, it's not easy to find, but it's also not, like, so hard to find because most corrupt agencies, individuals are sloppy. Wh who's going who's to investigate them? Brian Williams? <laughs> you know, like Anderson Cooper? So they don't expect anyone to look. But I think if you watch this documentary, I hope that people see. I mean, the, the best the best example is my younger brother. He's not really into politics. I mean, he's a good guy, but he's just not in our space. So he doesn't really watch. Uh, he watched yesterday. He texted me. I cannot believe this is happening in America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, and I think that the way you guys go about with this documentary and just like you really can get a sense of how many people you talk to and just sharing their stories. I think that's so important because we kind of have the tendency as human beings to tune out if something doesn't affect us. But what you really prime people to believe, I think, in this documentary is that this can happen to you. It's not just about Flint, but this can happen and it's happening in America. So to really get these anecdotes, to hear these personal stories, I think that that really was the strength of the documentary. And there's so many things that you made me think about in this documentary that I hadn't initially really thought deeply about. Um, a lot of the people you spoke with raised the specter that they think this is an ethnic cleansing. You have Flint, which is a majority minority community. People think that they're being ethnically cleansed. Um, you're kind of giving, I think, a lot of researchers a gift in saying, look, there's a lot of correlations here with the water and medical issues. We can't say de definitively as journalists that this is because of, you know, causation and correlation aren't necessarily the same thing. But we can say that there's enough there there to where somebody needs to get out there and test this immediately. You also touched on corporate media, and I don't know how much you want to get into here, but um, this is based off of towards the end of the documentary, you said very definitively, fuck the New York Times. Um, and I really felt that anger that you were communicating to us because, um, again, I don't want to spoil the documentary because I, I want people to watch it. But basically, you discover this bombshell story and corporate media doesn't care about what you specifically ha have to say. They essentially try to steal the story from you. Do you want to go into that or do you want to... Because I don't want to... Because I feel like that's such a huge piece in the documentary and it kind of you get a happy ending towards the happy ending towards the end but in the journalistic sense that you're getting the word out but do you want to talk about that at all because i found that just completely fascinating and infuriating at the same time yeah and i also just want to say uh ty bayless who's our photojournalist he's been my cameraman for a few years he was a one-man crew usually documentaries have like four or five people working on it he's done production directing editing audio he hasn't wow. slept in three three days to finish this so <laughs> Props to Shout him. Shout out to Todd. Uh, so there's two two things with the media. Number one, you know, 
I think the last bit of naivete I had uh, about his car- corporate media was kind of just like sucked out of me with this because yeah. I really thought like, oh my, I, I get it. Like we're in a 24-7 Trump Russia thing, but this is too big. Like some outlet will pick this up because, uh, uh, you know, when we found this, we had just launched status coup. So like we're not at that time, we're not like a big enough outlet that we're just going to publish this on our own and it's going to go viral. Like I was willing to publish it at, at a more corporate outlet that has broader reach. So I think between Jen and I, we probably reached out to at least 100 or so outlets. We got a mix of, we don't have the bandwidth for this. <laughs> uh, we got a mix of, is there a connection to Trump? I mean, frankly, this wow. started under Obama, and there is really, no, I mean, Trump hasn't made it better, obviously, but there's mm-hmm. no, like, core Trump angle. We got, um, well, you know, we don't really use freelancers, I said. Can you make an exception for, like, ethnic an environmental cover-up that Aaron Brockovich calls one of the biggest cover-ups of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. I even I even offered outlets, well, uh, throw your name on there first. We don't need, like, first bill because we just want the story out. So, um, full disclosure, I don't think it was in the documentary, but it was supposed to be published with Newsweek mm. in November. Um, they kind of dragged their feet. It was supposed to be published in September, but because of Kavanaugh and, and that whole... Uh, month long of coverage, which I understood. I mean, it was a big story and we were okay having it pushed. But in November, it was supposed to be published in Newsweek magazine, which would have been pretty big. And we get an email the day before. uh, And I quote, uh, as in politics, when you're explaining, you're losing. Wow. Meaning it was too complicated to explain, which I guess Newsweek thinks their audience is pretty dumb because it's not complicated. They flushed, they flushed, the let out before they took the samples. You explained so it they, in 30 seconds in the documentary. <laughs> right, right. They also said we didn't have enough data, and I said, we knocked on 450 doors and spoke with 150 residents and have paperwork to, pr- to, to support a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So we decided to self-publish it, but um, basically, while we were while we were in the field, um, you know, I was, I was, I, I had talked to the Daily Beast. They were originally interested and then backed away for whatever reason. So I reached out to the New York Times. I didn't give them the whole story, but I, I said, this is what we're finding. Um, and, you know, I'd love to publish it with you guys. So I was pretty surprised. They got back to me pretty quickly. I got bounced from one editor in New York to the Chicago bureau chief. So the Chicago bureau chief responds to me basically with that kind of entitlement arrogant new york times response well we have we have plenty of reporters in the midwest that we check in from time to time on flint whatever that means so you know if we were going to publish this we would do it ourselves so i wrote back i'm happy to co-publish it i don't need first bill the new york times could make it seem like i don't really care we just want this out then uh, as we're knocking on doors i get a call from one of my main sources here saying, oh, a New York Times reporter just called her about water testing in Flint and if she knew anything about, um, you know, fault manipulated testing. Uh, and the source said, yeah, I do, uh, but you're going to have to talk to Jordan because, you know, they've been knocking on doors and it's their story. So basically the New York Times took – it's not like a viewer where you just, like, send a hot tip. Like mm-hmm. I deliberately pitched it to publish with them and instead of, you know – the crime of going with a freelance journalist they basically tried to like take it uh basically take my reporting and and report it themselves i guess and then when she told them that instead of contacting me again they contacted a scientist who has nothing to do with the story 
but has gotten a lot of national media headlines as like the hero of Flint. Mm. But he really, he didn't know anything about the story. He didn't know what we found anything to basically ask him, do you know anything about, you know, manipulated testing? And he was like, he basically waved them off of it because he didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. So it's just an example of, it was a perfect storm of media outlets who are 24 seven submerged in Trump and Russia and Stormy Daniels and whatever else. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I read the Mueller report, most of it. I think there are very bad things in there. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's, as I thought, there's there's nothing sinister as far as collusion, but there is a president that obviously, if he was not president, would be charged with obstruction of justice. Yeah. But call me old-fashioned, Mike. I think we could walk and chew gum at the same times. And if you watch this documentary, I would like to ask you, what is the gravest threat to our democracy? Fake Facebook pages from Russia or people that are poisoned that the numbers are then cooked and, and told your water's fine. That's my opinion is it's the latter. Uh, it's really a shame because, you know, you have outlets. I don't think they're that progressive, but like Mother Jones, for example, passed. The Intercept passed. Uh, I mean, Democracy Now! I've been trying to get on Democracy Now! about this. For some reason, I can't get a response. You have, I mean, Young Turks didn't take it. Um, there's all, the nation, you know, not even like getting responses from, from some outlets, which makes you wonder because like, I like a lot of those outlets for the most part, but it makes you wonder independent media and progressive media exists to basically do what we know the corporate media is not going to do. So, uh, I think a lot of independent media, not just because of this, but in a lot of other cases has kind of gotten lost in the Trump thing too. And I think we all need to realize, yes, Trump needs to be covered. He is uh, doing some very damaging things, but there's a reason Trump became president in the first place, and that's because the New York and D.C. kind of coastal media are pretty much totally clueless as to what's going on out in the country. And I think too many times we as uh, corporate media and some independent media, you know, you cover something like Flint for the two weeks that the media was there, and then it's that's it. Same thing with mass shootings, same things with you know, black men getting massacred. It, it's a story for now. Mass shootings are a story for maybe a day yeah. before. So, um, you know, I think media is, I think you'll see in this documentary, it's not a major uh, part of it, but uh, it will show you how not, you would think that if in a normal media environment, you break a story like this, it, it would get some traction, right? Mm -hmm. But we we Newsweek killed it, and, and frankly, I mean, if I'm keeping it real, I, I happen to like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez a lot. But even some progressives have not said anything about this. Um, her Rashida Tlaib, you know, benefit of the doubt, maybe their their advisors didn't bring it to them. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I've talked because you know one of the ways to get attention is to get your progressives with a, with a big following to say something, and then I mean, national media covers if she breathes, <laughs> much That's less true. <laughs> so um, I'm hoping that uh, with the documentary coming out um, and hopefully more uh, coming out mm -hmm. uh, once it's looked at by authorities uh, that we get more people on this. Because like you said, the, the reason I cover Flint so much is not just because of Flint. If you take the cameras away from Flint, if, if the when the cameras leave, when the microphones leave, and frankly, I mean this humbly, we have been the only camera here for a long time. Yeah. We're always stunned when we come here. This is my 14th time. There's really few national media here. Um, when that happens and, and it just is normalized, poisoning people and then cooking the numbers to falsely declare the water's fine, 
that's the playbook for everywhere else. Other Rick Snyders are going to be like, well, they got away with it there. So, yeah, no. And I think that what you're speaking to with people like AOC not talking about this, I don't know how much of that is a political decision. Like she doesn't want to talk about it because it's not politically expedient. I, I would like to think it's not. I mean, this should be right up her alley. But another thing is, I think that a lot of this also is people being desensitized. Like you said, with mass shootings, we talk about it for a couple of days and then it's over. You know, it's it, the, the news cycle replaces itself with something else. So that's why I think that the documentary is really important because it kind of gets all of us to not feel as desensitized because it reminds you in a very concrete way, this is the impact. These are the faces of the people that it's affecting and it's still happening. And one thing that kind of hangs over the documentary is the fact that they still don't have clean drinking water. Like, that's that's kind of on the top of your mind. Like, you're not watching this and thinking, wow, I can't believe this happened. Like, it's still happening. So I wanted to ask you, this kind of goes beyond, you know, the documentary and the duration of time where you filmed. We have a turnover in government. Gretchen Whitmore is now the governor. Rick Snyder is out. In terms of accountability, in terms of people going to jail, in terms of actually getting this fixed, what are we looking at? Is there any hope or is it still people dragging their feet, bureaucracy kind of um, slowing things down? What is your sense in that regard? You know, obviously it, it's not moving as quickly as I think it should. Um, like I said, and like I think you're pointing out, this is still a crisis. I mean, it's not like it's gotten better. I mean, maybe the maybe the numbers are fine. If they test the right way, maybe they'll find the numbers are fine. But I could tell you, People don't usually get rashes five years later and and, and hair loss and th- if the water's just dandy. And I've anecdotally, I've tasted the water in a few places. It tastes like dog piss. So I, I could tell you, Governor Gretchen Whitmer optically is way better than uh, Governor Snyder. She has come to Flint, including last week. She did a panel with residents about regaining trust. She actually, during that panel, confirmed our reporting. She, somebody mm-hmm. asked her about the water testing. She said... Oh, you know, there's been reports about running the water. Um, she has not publicly said anything as far as there needs to be an investigation about this. She has not publicly said anything about there needs it needs to be looked in as far as the ex-governor. I think this is a bit of Barack Obama syndrome where he said we don't want to look backwards as far as Bush and his officials. We want to look mm. forward. Um, I, there could be a lot of reasons for that, I, political reasons. Uh, so in the nitty gritty, optically, she's better. She's she's visited Flint. She's talking to Flint residents. But nitty gritty, I mean, there's still a lot of pipes that need to be replaced. And not to get too in the weeds, what a lot of people don't realize, and the media, because they're all lazy and not that bright, it's not just the service lines. So your audience knows the service lines are the water pipes from the curb into the house. They're only changing those. They're not touching residents' interior plumbing. A lot of the problem, it's not like, okay, Jesus could bless the water, if you believe in Jesus. He could bless the water anew. It goes through brand new pipes that are not lead. But if it's going into busted interior pipes, there's still chance for lead and other heavy metals to come off those pipes. So they're not touching the interior plumbing because, by law, the interior plumbing is the homeowner's responsibility. Well, the homeowners did not change from Detroit's water to the Flint River. The homeowners didn't forget to add the proper corrosion control chemicals, so they're not touching the interior plumbing, and I think that's a major thing. They could, and this, the only reason they're changing the service lines is because of a lawsuit from 
uh, ACLU and residents and this and that that got a lot of money towards service line replacement. So I think one thing I want to, I don't know if it came across in the documentary, but if this happened anywhere in Manhattan, if this happened anywhere in DC, probably even Portland, um, would have been fixed pretty quick. Yeah. Um, even in Michigan, they found high levels of PFAS, which are cancer causing chemicals that they're finding actually a lot more all over the country. They're, they're chemicals made from the manufacturing of things like Teflon, Governor's Night. That, it, it was happening in, in cities in Michigan that are a lot more white, more middle class. There was free water going in there right away and action right away. So I don't really bother with environmental racism. This is just racism. Yeah. Uh, you know, Flint is predominantly black. There's, but it's also, uh, as Bernie always talks about and gets criticized for, it's also a class issue because there's a hell of a lot of poor white people in Flint, too. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the last thing is what I hope the documentary shows, because we tried to show the history of how things got so impoverished in Flint and how things got so bad. Things like a water crisis don't happen in a vacuum. It, it, the reason it happens is because there is a controlled demolition of what once was the middle class. Flint, for people that know, you know economic history, Flint was called Vehicle City. Flint was at one time had some of the best schools in the country, had the middle class, had auto workers from General Motors. They used to have over 100,000 auto workers in Flint from General Motors uh, and other cities. But when you start, um, you know, selling off jobs to China and Mexico, racist rezoning laws, white flight, um, when, you know, in the in the in the spirit of economic development, the private all these privatization schemes, the Flint water crisis, the media never covered it this way. It was really a privatization scheme. Yeah. They, were, they were temporarily temporarily switching to the Flint River while they were building a privatized water pipeline. And when they switched to the Flint River, the, environmental de- the Department of Environmental Quality actually broke the law. By law, you're supposed to add corrosion control chemicals into the water for the exact reason. So old pipes, because our government has not changed the pipes in over 60 years all over America – don't corro- don't leach lead. So I want people to understand this happened. It happened because Governor Snyder appointed an unelected emergency manager that was essentially a proxy for him. The emergency manager decided we're gonna we're gonna switch from the Detroit water system, which never had a problem for Flint. Flint purchased its water from Detroit system to the Flint River, which I don't know about Portland, but think of like the Hudson River in mm-hmm. in, in New York. I mean, this is like you know. General Motors had dumped its parts in there for over a century. Jeez. You know, you had, in some cases, dead bodies rolling around. So I hope people watch the documentary. And I also people, I hope people realize that independent media is critically important. So we were able to do it and knock on the doors because our viewers funded us. We're growing, but like fund independent media, whether it's us, whether it's Mike, whether, whether it's whomever. You know, some people, uh, you know, expose things. From a studio setup, some people expose things from, uh, you know, knocking on doors. Whatever it is, we're all trying to expose what the corporate media and, frankly, the politicians are covering up. Yeah. So I hope people uh, realize that uh, if they watch the documentary, which I hope they do, um, this is this is happening in more places than Flint. And the only re- the only way that you light an inferno under politicians' behinds to make them do something is to wake more people up. Because I guarantee you. There's Republicans who will see this documentary that will be pissed. Oh, because well, well, it could affect them. You know, you see the faces and you think that 
could very well be me. And as you said, like the water pipes, they're what, 60 plus years old in the country. So of yeah. course it could affect you. So that's why I think that these types of documentaries are so important when you just sit there and it's beat into your head for more than an hour. I think the, the documentary is an hour, 49 minutes or so. You sit there and you listen to all these stories and you think, holy shit, like it, you to really humanize this issue, I think that's so crucial. So I hope people do check out the documentary. By the time um, this interview goes up, it will have passed the launch date. It comes out April 23rd. Tell us how we can go about watching this. Can you rent it? Can you purchase it? And also tell us where we can become a member to support more of your reporting because I know you're not going to stop. Yeah. So, you know, and... Classic status quo fashion. We've been advertising April 23rd, but we are now in an Airbnb that has horrible Wi-Fi. So <laughs> it might be up April 23rd, but based on export and upload, more likely April 24th. April 23rd or 24th. April 23rd-ish. Yes, um, which it is what it is. It's 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 like an 8 gigabyte file for those of you that are tech people. Um, it will be up on flushingflint.com. You can go there now. It has the trailer. Uh, and a lot the original story. Uh, you could actually access it right now if you're a Status Quo member. We made it available for our members and patrons. So you can become a Status Quo member at statusquo.com slash join. I hope actual, like, old school journalism is worth it. You know, we have different plans, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month. And we made that available Sundays. So you could, it's up on our website under member content. And uh, yeah, I really hope people won't stop at watching the documentary because if you think this can't happen to you trust me it can and in many cases it's already happening to people and they don't know it uh, water utilities are gaming the system and it's not just the epa it's not just the state um the state environmental agencies we're talking about the cdc we're talking about the department of health and human services you would think like oh it's our government they want to get to the bottom it's in their benefit to actually find the lowest numbers possible, whether it's lead or other things, so they don't have to pay for the problem. And this is bipartisan because this has happened under both um, administrations. And the simplest way of putting it, water is life, which we heard a lot during Standing Rock, is not a bumper sticker. It's true. Yeah. So if you don't have if you don't have clean water, uh, if you don't have water, period, for X amount of days, you're going to get sick and die. Uh, and if you have un if you have contaminated water for so long. It's going to forever change your life if you're a child getting exposed to this. There's adults, even though adults aren't talked about as much. I know people that are 38, 30, 39 that I have become close friends with, sources of mine. I don't mean it in a bad way towards them. They look 65, 70 mm -hmm. from, from lead and, and other contaminants that were in their body. I know people that uh, you know are, are basically go from zero to 60 as far as temper, because lead causes emotional volatility, mood swings, um, learning disabilities, things like that. I mean, if you come to Flint, it's really, it's really uh, you will it, you will quickly see that this was never this crisis was always a crisis, but it wasn't treated that way by the media and the politicians. So I really hope people will watch. Again, you can watch it right now. StatusCoup.com/join, and I really appreciate it. You know, we need people in independent media. I went on the Hill, uh, covered it, so kudos That's to great. them. Um, and we're trying to get more traction. So I hope people, especially the fact that this Thursday is five years, That's five years since, since an American city had clean drinking water. We all need to get off Twitter for a second and put down our phones and let that sink in. Like a first world country, supposedly the beacon of the world, has led a city for five years 
basically fend for themselves. And the reason is they're they're poor and they're majority minority. And yeah. that's pretty pretty shameful. Yeah, and you get all a sense of that in the documentary. So it's flushingflint.com, statuscoup.com. Jordan Sheridan, thank you so much for coming and uh, just talking about this. I think that the documentary is fantastic, and I really hope that people uh, feel encouraged to watch it because we really, like, you have to get a sense of what's happening. Like, just listening to it in this abstract way, you know, uh, hearing the news stories every now and then, it's not the same as seeing the faces. So I really hope that people do feel inclined to check it out. Thanks, Jordan. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the program, uh, if you'd like to support us and get early access to some of our videos, especially interviews, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com slash support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanist report or you can click join underneath any of our videos next week on the program i am scheduled to have peter dow as a guest newly woke uh peter dow will be joining us so that should be absolutely fascinating but anyways um that's it i've got nothing more to talk about so i'm done here this is the humanist report podcast my name is mike figueredo and i will see you all next week take care